We are in the city chambers. Sorry. We are in the city chambers, and I call the city commission workshop meeting to order. Commissioners present are Commissioner McDowell, myself, Mayor White, Vice Mayor Stokes, and Commissioner Emmerich. Do I acknowledge that Vice Mayor is yep. absent? And Vice Mayor Vice. Langdon is absent. Commissioner Langdon. Commissioner, sorry. Langdon is absent. There is a quorum present for this meeting. Also present are City Manager Fletcher, City Attorney Slayton, City Clerk Faust. No. Who's no. there? I'm sorry. Michael? Golan. Golan. I had to take, I didn't take my notes. I'm really sorry. Uh, I do see Police Chief Garrison back there. And is that Chief Titus back there? Thank you for waving your hand. That's always his little signal. Uh, let's do the pledge, and could I have uh, Carolyn? Would you mind leading us in the in the pledge? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, City Clerk, do we have any public comment? All right. Good morning. My name is Lynn Reese, and I live on North Barcelona Drive. <clears throat> See all the black spots on this map? These are single family homes that already exist in our little area. So this is about zoning in the Shire and Activity Center number six. South Barcelona Drive has already recently been reconsidered to remain a pocket that is RSF2. North Barcelona should remain the same also. An alternative could be in the architectural style description. It could read single family as well as what else is there. On another map, the Shire is bordered between Coco Plum and Bethlehem Waterways and North Barcelona. 30 single family homes is outside of that boundary. Also, there's a large completely unoccupied section west of Christ from Yorkshire that can accommodate commercial activity center enterprises as well as off River Road as well as further up Panacea. So those are the alternatives. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. Thank you. Okay. Do, so we have no online public comment? No. Nothing. Okay, thank you. All right, I guess without further ado, we'll move on to general business. City Manager, this is your item. Thank you, Madam Mayor. This item is discussion and possible action, excuse me, possible direction, no action, regarding a referendum question to amend section 1.02D of the Charter of the Code for the City of Northport related to the City's authority to issue general obligation and revenue bonds. This item is coming before you, Madam Mayor, for discussion as a conversation occurred after we had Hurricane Ian in the fall of last year. 
It is no secret that the city of Northport is one of very few, if any, other municipalities in the state that do not have any sort of bonding or authority to enter into bond debt um, without going to majority of voters at referendum. The restriction is uncommon and it could impact the city's ability in the future if we were to come into an emergency or critical situation. Therefore, we went back and we explored several options based on what we've seen throughout the state, around our surrounding municipalities, other jurisdictions similar in size and scope as the city of Northport. And today we have a presentation by the attorney's office and the finance department to give you some um, information and options to consider uh, going forward for a future discussion that would come back to you for a voting item on a regular commission workshop. So now I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Michael Golan and they're going to present some information and we have a lot of people to answer any questions that you may have as you go through your process of um, fleshing out the item further. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you. Good morning, Commission. Thank you. Thank you, City Manager. Um, as City Manager uh, just said, you know, we are here to present this presentation on, uh, as directed, on the bond potential bond referendum. Um, get my slides up good. So uh, on November 8th of 2022, the commission unanimously voted to direct staff to start the process of ordering the referendum for the general election in 2024 to amend section 1.02B of the city charter to allow the city to issue general obligation or revenue bonds in the future. In this presentation, what we're going to talk about is the city's legal authority issue the general obligation and revenue bonds under Florida law and then highlight some comparative jurisdictions and how their charters deal with bonds. The finance department will then provide its recommendations for commission consideration for amending the charter and also city's bond council, uh, Mr. Steve Miller is here to answer specific, any specific bond questions the commission may have uh, related to what the city is doing or um, recommendations the city might have. So with that, we will move on to section 1.02 B of the city charter. In summary, it effectively restricts the city from incurring debt of any type and any amount unless it's approved by a majority of voters at a referendum. This restriction is uncommon and could impact the city's ability to respond to an emergency situation or critical infrastructure scenario. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Our office has found no other jurisdiction in the state that has such strict language in its charter related to bonds. However, because the way the city's charter is written, it's arguable that the referendum requirement in our charter applies to all types of debt and not just bonds. But, but focusing on bonds for now, our charter specifically identifies both general obligation and revenue bonds. And Florida law treats general obligation and revenue bonds a little bit differently. So we're gonna get into the difference there um, and what these types of bonds are and the differences that they are required. Legal authority regarding general obligation bonds is found in the Florida Constitution. It provides that general obligation bonds are secured through ad valorem, ad valorem taxation, such as property, uh, property taxes based on property values, and they must be approved by referendum vote when the bond will mature more than 12 months from issuance. So there are those parameters there. If it's a general obligation, more than 12 months, referendum is required. And you're all asking yourself, well, what about if it's less than 12 months? Is, that is the next question that's uh, I'm going to talk about. Well, uh, municipalities have the authority to issue general obligation bonds of less than a year without a referendum, um, but not Northport. So short-term financing, that would be an example, commercial bank loans, that sort of thing, lines of credit, something that the city could do 
uh, but is prohibited from doing. Legal authority regarding revenue bonds is found within Florida statutes. The statute provides that as long as the bonds payable from a source that is not ad valorem taxes, no referendums required. But not in Northport. So there are bonds. Uh, bond is payable from revenue that's not ad valorem, as, as I just said. These can be anything from uh, utilities, excise taxes, gas taxes, other general revenues, um, operation of a finance project, grants, fees, those sorts of things can be used to pay those. Those are the major differences between those two bond types. Next, we're going to take a look at what other comparable jurisdictions are doing and how their charters deal with bonds. These are comparable due to either the size of the jurisdiction or their proximity to Northport. And as you'll see, some charters uh, mention bonds and deal with bonds, and some don't at all. So the jurisdictions on this slide, they have no bond limiting language in their charters. Either they don't mention anything about bonds, or they simply provide, will follow the process as provided by Florida law, um, whereas others don't have any language in their charter, but might, their code might deal with bonds and how to deal with bonds. Okay, so some of the comparable jurisdictions that do have bond language, uh, we'll now talk about, for example, Sarasota County. The county's referendum requirement is only with respect to bonds payable from taxes. So there, they say when county tax revenues are used to pay this indebtedness, the referendum is required unless the amount's less than $17 million. The $17 million amount was in 2003. So theirs are solely payable from, uh, bonds solely payable from other types of revenue, an enterprise fund, impact fee, an assessment. Those are not subject to this referendum requirement or monetary limitation. So the county will issue, can issue any bond that's below this monetary level, um, and then they have a built-in escalator. You'll see that every year on October 1, they build their escalator in by CPI, the Consumer Price Index, for that 12-month period. Currently, their limitation from 2003 has been uh, escalated every year. They are now about $28 million plus dollars currently. So a referendum is required for any bond that exceeds that fiscal amount per project per year. And then they have additional uh, further requirements. There are additional limitations. They set that dollar limit per project. So you may have multiple projects that are under $28 million. They can do bonds for each project. Um, but they could not break up a project into separate parts and do separate bonds for each part of that project. One project is one project. Their charter limits that bond to that project. Does that make sense that they can't break it up, kind of get around that, that limitation? Um, City of Venice does things a little bit differently. They have their general obligation bonds, which follow Florida law, and they require a referendum if it's more than one year. The revenue bonds simply require 50% plus one majority of the commission to say, we're going to do a bond. City of Sarasota, they likewise for general revenue, uh, general obligations, excuse me, bonds follow Florida law, but they set a limit on the maximum amount of that bond. And the way that their math works is 10% of the non-exempt assessed value of city real property. Um, I don't know what that number is currently. I'm sure they do when they go out to do that. But they have a maximum amount. They can't go past that limit. For revenue bonds, it's simply approved by their city commission with no additional limitations on those. Coconut Creek simply says we're going to follow Florida law and um, no other limitations regarding anything. 
Brevard County, for their general obligation bonds, they follow Florida law. And then they have revenue bond limitations. Their monetary limit is $15 million per project, but that limit expires every two years. So if they wanted to do the same project again after two years, they could do that. And it specifically excludes certain projects from this limitation of the $15 million. And those projects are uh, not related to those mandated by court order, a self-liquidating project, a utility, or their enterprise fund, or road projects funded by tax taxes. So those would not fall under that cap. Additionally, their commission grants themselves the authority um, in case of an emergency, whether that's declared by the governor or the president of the United States, related to the repair or reconstruction of certain infrastructure. So if, they, if the commission determines there's an emergency, it's related to these things, they can do a revenue bond a specific carve-out for that. So uh, some possible amendments to North Porch Charter. So as you've heard, Florida law provides the general framework for how local governments can issue these general obligations or revenue bonds. As long as that framework is followed, a jurisdiction can place any other guide rails that it wants on itself or that its charter will allow. Uh, if the commission determines that it wants to move forward and, um, and propose an amendment to the city charter, the following are the most common limitations that we've seen out there. It's kind of like an a la carte menu, though. You can go with none of these options, all of these options, some of these options, and um, staff is going to recommend uh, there to you, but we'll go over what the possible amendments could be. So if you wanted to just simply rely on the constitutional limits within obligation bonds, you can do that um, by repealing any reference in 102B to revenue bond limitations. You can simply clarify that the city is going to follow that Florida law and the referendum is only required for general obligation bonds should you choose to go that path. You could clarify that the referendum is not required for bank loans and other private placements. Like we discussed, our charter language is interpreted as any kind of um, loan taken out, including bonds. You could authorize revenue bonds completely or within limitations. You could set a maximum authorized amount you could increase it by CPI. You could set when that period increases, if it's annual, like we've seen in other places. Um, you could require a commission vote 100%, 50%, somewhere in the middle to require that. You could have a referendum only for a sort, um, if debt matures at a certain period, more or less in 10, 20, 30 years, for example. Um, you could authorize them for certain categories. For example, during a declared emergency as determined by governor, the president, this, this board. Um, you could set the emergency as determined by the commission. You can increase it. You can set it to simply for public safety reasons, emergency recovery, or response to a regulator's order, that sort of thing. So those are uh, what we've seen out there, what other jurisdictions are doing, and what our limitations are. And let's pass it over to staff, if, unless you have any questions for legal specifically, talk about what they're recommending. Good morning, my name is Irina Kojarenko and I'm Assistant Finance Director. And I'm going to talk about some of the options that we are recommending. Um, talk about option one. This is our recommended option. And this is where a commission would be authorizing to issue debt 
in emergency situation. And in this case, uh, we would define emergency as declared local, state, or federal emergency, um, as well as public health and safety. And public safe, uh, health and safety um, would be defined as response to regulatory um, agencies, such as, for example, Department of Health would come and uh, would require to do some kind of major infrastructure upgrade uh, otherwise, they would shut down our whole sewer system. Um, another um, would be um, due to safety uh, in our infrastructure, um, such as roads, bridges, uh, water control structure, sewer, uh, and water, and then also in response to police fire um, and then declared disaster. So this is our recommended option, and then we are um, also wanted to provide more than just one. So here we have option uh, two. Um, with this, we would just follow Florida law. Um, this is similar to how Venice and Broward County, as well as other jurisdictions are doing, just like Michael mentioned earlier. Um, we would still need to establish acceptable debt limit policies. Uh, in order to maintain good uh, credit rating. And our third option uh, is where we structure it with some set parameters and bonding limitations. Uh, with this option, uh, commission would be authorizing debt payable from taxes for one-time issuance within a set structure, uh, such as once every 90 days, up to a set amount per project, like 15, up to 15 million, and with annual CPI adjustment every October 1st. Um, with this option, we would still uh, recommend the commission uh, would waive the monetary limit if there is an emergency, um, as we define, or as I defined in option one. Um, with this option, debt that would be solely payable from enterprise fund, impact fees or assessments would not be subject to uh, limitation. And then um, as some other jurisdictions are doing, uh, projects would not be um, allowed to be broken into separate parts in order to avoid um, the limitation. Um, and here, I wanted to apologize uh, right away on this slide. Um, there was a Scrivener's error um, where it says option one on both of those projects. It should be option two, because option two is where um, we're uh, offering to follow Florida law. Um, here, I wanted to provide some hypothetical projects. These are not actual projects that we have. They are just more hypothetical, just for example. Um, with uh, this, I uh, wanted to present what would be our, which options would be able if we had these type of projects out there that we wanted to issue bonds. Um, so the first uh, project we have, police station for 50 million revenue bond that would be secured by surtaxes. Um, option two would be the only option that the commission uh, would be able to authorize that otherwise, um, with other options, it will have to go to referendum. Um, our second, um, unless the first project, it would qualify as an emergency. Um, but in this case, 
we are saying that it's not an emergency. It's just the police station that needed to a regular replacement. Um, our second project here is a road improvement, and it's a 15 million revenue bond um, because it's up to 15 million for option three. Uh, we could do option three, and option two would be following Florida law. Um, on the third uh, project, we have water control infrastructure where it is an emergency under public health and safety. Um, and uh, we wanted to issue 20 million revenue bond. All three options would be available um, in this case and commission would be able to authorize debt um, for that project. And then the fourth project is parks improvement general obligation bond. Uh, regardless of the amount um, per Florida law, we have to uh, do a referendum. Here, I wanted to show some list of uh, Northport possible projects uh, that may um, that may um, be in the future financed with that. Not necessarily that we're going to go and get that for all those projects. I just wanted to put in some perspective on what are some possible projects. Um, this is not a comprehensive list, um, but just something to think about in the future um, that some of these projects will need to do. Wanted to recap of our op recommended options. Option one is the one that we are recommending where um, commission would be authorizing, be able to authorize to issue debt for emergency. Um, as, in, as I mentioned, declared local, state, and federal emergency and public health and safety. <coughs> With option two, um, we have um, where the city would uh, follow state um, law. Um, and then option three is where we would set um, parameters and bonding limitation. Uh, with the exception, still, you'll be able to um, authorize debt in emergency. Um, our current position, um, just wanted to um, talk about, as you all know, the city is still recovering uh, from uh, Hurricane Ian. Here we have some um, activity uh, Ian, uh, from Ian um, and some project costs. Um, this is not a comprehensive list of all of our costs, and this is cost as of um, as of um, the time we pulled. Um, but due to a solid uh, financial policies that the city had, we were able to cover all of those um, activities uh, while we wait for FEMA and insurance reimbursement. But I wanted to point out what if there was another end that happened within just a short period of time. I don't know if we could have uh, be uh, able to finance with our current um, cash on hand to do another EN. <laughs> um, so uh, that would strain city's finances and uh, potentially risk our credit rating. Wanted to show some EN damage. Um, this was example of a damage from Ian uh, to water control structure 106. 
Here we have Price Roads Paler. Um, and then here we have Chancellor Road Paler. Um, as stated earlier, if we need to borrow um, and we have an emergency, our current process is that we have to go to referendum. As you all know aware, primary and general elections um, only occur every two years. We could go to special elections, but special elections take time. Um, we have to get an approval from supervisor of election and the cost of special election is about 100,000. And when there is um, time, it also costs money because there's inflation. Um, so just wanted to reiterate our current process. It restricts our ability to respond to emergency situations um, or critical infrastructure um, scenarios. That concludes our presentation. Any questions? Okay. Thank you. Um, what I'd like to do is, is open it up to commissioner questions. I'd like to go in alphabetical order, if that's okay. With, with all of you and yes um, just and then have a round if you have a question regarding the, that commissioner's question so that we kind of stay on the topic because I found in workshops sometimes we bounce around and I'd like to get something clear through rather than having to come back and revisit it I don't know if I made myself clear but that's how I'd like to do that and before we do that I'd like to recognize to recognize former Commissioner Tom Jones in the audience. How you doing? Good to see you. Um, all right, so um, I'll start with um, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, I didn't really have any questions. I've read through this fairly thoroughly. I wanted to hear what the other commissioners had to say and on the question part of it, but I'll save my comments. So okay. all I didn't right. have any questions. Sounds good. Vice Mayor? This is questions only? Yeah. Um, what was the logic staff used to recommend option one? What was your thinking? Well, um, due to Ian, what happened, um, we wanted to be able to issue bonds, at least in the emergency situations. So we thought that at this point, um, issuing bonds when there is an emergency, that is crucial to the city. What? In, in addition to that, sir, we want to make sure that what we're recommending to you shows that we are not looking for a free authority for either us or you to be able to issue bonds on behalf of the citizens, but what we want is something that protects us in the case of another emergency. And also, as we know that public safety and taking care of life and preserving life is the most important thing that we do as a government, being able to react to those needs in situations that are timely and effective is important as well. And obviously that makes a lot of sense with regard to any kind of an emergency. With regard to our water structures, our bridges though, um, I think we're on a pace of about one, possibly two a year, which at the 
at that pace would take us about 30 years to work our way through. Those certainly don't constitute an emergency unless there's another hurricane, but it certainly represents serious issue to our city and to our infrastructure, to our ability to develop and grow. Um, how's it? I, I, I guess what I'm saying, I mean, I sort of know the answer to this question, but at the same time, I'd like to hear it, is why not address the elephant in the room, which is we have serious infrastructure and transportation road project issues in this city that we are severely hampered from addressing because we have to go to referendum to borrow money for anything here. And, you know, if we don't take that approach, we basically forgo any opportunity of ever getting ahead of the curve on this. And so the reason why that was not included was if uh, water control structure fails, then it automatically becomes a public safety emergency, which qualifies it. The fact that um, our forefathers had a lack of planning or preventative maintenance that led us to this point, and I mean over decades, not over the course of recent memory, pointing the finger at anyone here, we need to figure that out within our budget, which has allowed our public works department to do that. And then when we need something in addition to that, we come to you and say, hey, now we're at the point where we need to um, address that issue. So those issues could be brought back for bonding opportunities in addition to public safety or emergency, but they shouldn't sort of just be included in here because then we could, we, we could um, outside, outside, outside operate outside the boundaries of what we would call something that was an emergency and a public safety need at that time. Good. Okay. Does anybody have any questions with reference to what Vice Mayor asked about the bonding for that situation while we're on that topic? Okay. Um, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah. Um, just to make sure that I am clear on the differences between a general, uh, sorry, a general obligation bond and a revenue bond. Could you please kind of walk me through, not just for myself to make sure I'm understanding it, but for the citizens, um, because it's a bond. A bond is a bond, but what are the distinctive differences between the two? So in a nutshell, you have the general obligation bond controlled by Florida's constitution, which limits what can be used to pay for that bond. You have the lower taxes, whereas a general revenue bond is used, you use general revenues basically to pay other revenue sources pay for those bonds that are not at the taxes. And those are controlled by Florida statute, not constitution. So that, that's the nutshell, the difference. So where is assessments fall in that? Because I don't see it listed in here. Under revenue bonds. So, so, okay. Thank you for that. I have no further questions on that one, but I do have other questions, ma'am. All right, thank you. Um, I had a question about the county cap, which you said is 17 million. 
It was in 2003, and now it's about 28. Okay, million. and you said that's per project. Is that only, do they have the stipulation, I'm sorry if I missed it, emergencies and public health and safety only, or is it anything? Any project below that amount would not require a referendum. Okay. Um, per project. Per project. And they've had that in place in general since 2003, you said? That's when the, uh, the limit was set. Right. As of 2003. Okay. And then it escalated every year based on consumer price index since then. All right. And then an emergency situation would, we already have parameters for that. What constitutes an emergency situation? Where is that? In, in Northport? Here in the city? No. Well, yes, because um, it would be what you're proposing and recommending is emergency or public safety. So we already have parameters in place for when it's an emergency. We have to officially declare it. To declare an emergency, yes, but to take a bond out based on that, no. Oh, okay. No, every bond in Northport, in the city, any bond, any loan, any money that we're trying to uh, to get required a referendum, regardless of what it's right for. Now. Right, right now. Right now, regardless of where that money comes from or how okay. it's paid. All right, and, and it was mentioned it, it costs $100,000 for a special election. Approximately. Right now. Yes. Okay. Um, I thought I had another question here, but I don't see it. Okay. All right. Um, back to Commissioner Emmerich. Did you have questions now? Now, yeah, I do have a question. Now, if we're going under the emergency status and then you're talking about option one, does that mean that regular maintenance of stuff and projects would not have to go to referendum or is it just emergency? It would be just emergency. And then um, just a reminder for uh, bonding, it would, for the majority, it has to be capital projects. It can be just regular maintenance. Well, no, I understand. Oh, okay. I meant major projects and stuff like that because you did put up the police station. And that right now is not at emergency status. So that would not fall under the emergency category. And that would still have to go to referendum. Uh, with uh, the other two options. With option... Um, two and three? Two and three. Okay. That's all I had. Thank you. Yeah, it has to do with this emergency definition because... What happened because of Hurricane Ian in everybody's mind, I would assume, absolutely equates to what is an emergency. But I'm, I'm very concerned who determines and how is that determined as to what is an emergency? How is it determined by an emergency? Is that determined by the commission? Is that determined by city manager? Is that determined by finance? How is it defined? who defines it and that to me is the crux of it because like when the pool the pool failed and it could have been classified when our original pool that was 60 years old was failing hey this is an emergency we have to make emergency repairs to this pool or we're going to shut it down and now the pool isn't working is that an emergency or is it not so I am very concerned and cautious about how that's done. So maybe you can help me, or maybe this is something that's going to have to come back. 
I can try and help you a little bit. Okay. So ultimately, the commission is going to have to determine whether or not the city is going to take out a bond on something. And if the, depending on how the um, the language is drafted, if it says that the once a de, once an emergency is declared by either president, the governor, this this body, then this commission can determine there's an there's an emergency related to something that needs to to be repaired. The commission at that time will determine there's an emergency. And if, if they say this is an emergency, we need to get this repaired because it's going to flood the city versus uh, have a crack in the pool. If the commission determines that that's an emergency, then, then that will be their purview. By leaving it broad, um, you, you are able to ca capture the things that you wouldn't necessarily think of at the time. So, when you say it's in a declared emergency um, and it says local, federal, state declarations, if, if there's a federal declaration that's somewhere in the country, would that enable a oh. bond? I, I, th these are my concerns sure. because there could be a state emergency that doesn't even affect us. Yes, yes, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I, we would. We were drafted in such a way that it would be limited to affecting the, our, the city, either declared throughout the city or affecting the city. The language itself hasn't been written yet. We wouldn't know what that exactly looks like, but of course, that would be something we would take that into consideration. So what if, going back to my pool example, uh, what if there isn't in a declared emergency? You know, Hurricane Ian obviously is a declared emergency, but the pool has to get fixed or else it's going to get shut down. And this is an emergency repair, but it's not declared. No, thank you, Commissioner. Um, but as we said, anything that the city would bring to the commission as what we believe constitutes an emergency would have to be approved by this board. So the commission itself would determine the parameters as we if we give us direction to go forward in this direct in this um, pathway that we're on, we would bring you tighter language and some examples of either larger uh, infrastructure issues or problems that may come up and whether they do or don't qualify and put them in front of you for your consideration. But any project and only by the commission um, direction would only get approved for us to issue debt on. Thank you for that. Um, that's all I had on that subject, Mayor. I don't know if anybody else wants to piggyback off of it. Yeah, I do. Go ahead, Vice Mayor. Um, so basically, if we were to go in this direction, we could ease, not easily, but we could, we could create a combination of emergency declarations. In other words, we could say, we could clear, more clearly define it. We could say, were there to be a local, state, or federal emergency declaration which affects the city in Northport and the city commission, in addition, considers it an emergency, I mean, then it triggers our ability to incur debt. So it's all in that definition, and that's something we could, with, you know, legal and, and whatever additional support and 
input. I mean, you could bring that back to us so we could create that kind of condition that might create a comfort level. Because obviously the rub is here, as Commissioner McDowell says, we don't want to create a carte blanche situation, but we do want to protect the city and its ability to address emergencies. And God forbid we did have another emergency like Ian in the short term, and we didn't have the really the, the financial wherewithal we had for Ian, we would have been in a tough spot and and it would have caused us irreparable harm because we wouldn't have had any ability to borrow the money we needed to address debris removal, all kinds of infrastructure replacements. So, you know, it is important we do this. It's just important we do it in a way that creates enough parameters and protections so that our citizens have that comfort level to know that there are some good and strong restrictions and, and identifiable and definable parameters because in order to make this change, we're going to have to ask them to vote on this. So, you know, it needs to be very clear. It needs to be concise. It needs to be something that the public's going to understand so that they don't think we're just asking for car blanche to spend their tax dollars. So I assume that can be done. And that's, that's, Kind of what we're looking for today also exactly. is that direction of what you'd like to see and we can then draft that that language for your review yep i just wanted to provide a, a little bit of additional clarification on option number one um there's a couple different moving parts in here yeah. so for example you have to be if, if you read the first uh bullet commission may authorize debt for declared local state or federal emergency that's one item. The second item, public health and safety. Now here's some items under that public health and safety. The first bullet responds to regulatory, up? I'm sorry? Could you put that back up because oh, it excuse changed. Oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah. it changed between, yeah. well, sometime over the weekend. <laughs> okay. Thank um, you. That so way then we can see what you're saying. Sure, no problem. Appreciate that. Uh-huh, no problem. Thank you, Michael. So the second bullet, for public health and safety. Now, under public health and safety, there's a couple of items. The first one, response to a regulatory agency. So, uh, for example, Swift Mud, Southwest Oral Water Management District, Department of Environmental Protection, they may tell us as a city we need to do something. So this is something, and in all cases, we're going to come to the commission for this. But this is one item. Another item. The second item under this public health and safety bullet, Infrastructure, including roads, bridges, water control structures, sanitation, water, and sewer. So we, we need to put something in, not in an emergency basis. We just it needs, we, we need a water control structure. And, and for that item, and we'd be coming to the commission as well, any of those infrastructure items. And the third bullet, police, fire, and declared disaster. So police or fire may have a need. That is all what's included under option number one. What we tried to do is not only cover the emergencies, but some public safety type things and infrastructure that can be very expensive that would be included underneath this, this uh, option. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that because actually that was gonna be the basis of my, my questions that we do have two segments. We're not just talking about declared emergencies that it, other things that can come up that need to be addressed. Uh, infrastructure 
including roads and our control structures, that, that's when something happens that's not related to an emergency, but it's got to be taken care of. I'm thinking about, uh, and you remember this, the great flood of 92, <laughs> when, when I, the water control structures wouldn't work, and then it, they just collapsed. That wasn't a declared emergency. That was just a, a, a lot of rain we had. Um, but that had to be taken care of. So in that, this, this would apply in that situation that this has to get fixed and we could um, authorize, and we would, it still would come before the commission, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So either way, everything would still come before any commission. So this would be in the future. Any sitting commissioners, they would have to decide whether it warrants putting it, uh, getting a bond, right? City manager? And, and I would be cautious, Madam Mayor, for you as a commission to remember and realize that we do want to make sure that these are situations that were unforeseen, mostly unforeseen. We don't want to make it seem like that we're going to just start borrowing money to fix things without people having their say-so in those things. That wouldn't be the intent that we're trying to carry out. But if we're not going to use the word emergency in the public, in all of the public health and safety items, we do need to make sure that the language is clear that it was mostly unforeseen so that it's not something that someone could say, well, you didn't prepare properly and now you want us to react quickly. That's not, I don't think that's the right way to go. Right, right. And I appreciate that because I'm thinking, yeah, we could have a road, a bridge collapse has nothing to do with anything else, but it, sure. and, and it has to get, get fixed. I, I just had one other question about the, the county cap. Um, oh shoot, what was my question? <laughs> oh, it'll come back to me. Um, I'm just curious about that. Oh, they, would you know that has to come before them to approve anyway, still? They have yeah. a cap. Does that mean they only has to come before the county commissioners if it's over that 17 million or? If it's currently over the, it's currently 28 million and it will increase oh. annually. So if it's over that, it would require a referendum. Okay. If it's under it, it goes to the board. To determine. And they still approve it yet. Correct. Or not approve it. Okay. Okay. All right. That's it for my questions. So Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, that's, that's the spot where I was looking at. If we did, I was listening to Commissioner Stokes. If we did do restrictions per se and let's say the cap is 28 million and a tornado comes through and takes out the police station we're looking at 50 million we would have to go back out to referendum to go ahead and make up that difference That's correct. but under option one we could decide as a commission to go ahead and approve going out there and doing that for a revenue for a general revenue bond that would be Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I understand there's restrictions and, and it's not a carte blanche type thing going out there to spend, spend, spend. But I don't, when Ian came through, you looked at debris, we were looking at what? You had it on the slide, $45 million that we had to pay out just for debris cleanup. You know, what if we did have a second Ian? You know, we would have been stuck and we would have been relying on a lot of the neighboring communities and, and, really still be stuck and probably still devastated to this day rather than being in the position that we were in getting everything cleaned up quickly and getting our citizens back to work and and working properly there's still some damage out there yes but not as much as I, there could have been 
So, yes, I just wanted to make sure it still came to the commission if it was over that cap or if it went out to the public and then now you're taking time, you're costing more money on special elections, this, that, and the other. So, all right, thank you. That's all I have. All right, Mr. McDowell. Yeah, um, I cannot recall when we've had a special election for issuing bonds. That's always been something that was done at a general election um, or a primary. So I, I'm not too sure we need to be concerned with a special election. Um, but anyways, um, my, my concern is we have to sell this to the citizens. And while I appreciate what the city manager is saying, that this is for unforeseen incidences, I go back to what assistant city manager said, that it sounds like it's also for the water control structures, the police station, and other things. And I agree. I understand it's going to come back to the commission with the language um, to be able to issue the bonds. I'm thinking about how are we selling this to the citizens and making sure that we have parameters in place for like a dollar limit. I don't know, $10 million is our limit. Um, and that way then they, they still have authority as citizens to be able to approve or deny the bond request, especially if it's a, a revenue bond. So I, I'm, I'm wanting to get kind of a feedback from you guys on that. So Commissioner, the special election, the fact that they haven't, it haven't, hasn't occurred, you know, to your, the frequency you mentioned in the past, we're putting that in there because if there was an emergency, we would need to then go have a special election in order to have this referendum put on a ballot for people to react to. So it's not based on what has happened in the past. It's about making sure that we're protected for the future. And again, the infrastructure improvements that are referenced, we need to make sure that what we're saying and what is understood for the citizens is on the best uh, interest of their behalf. The fact that a public safety issue has occurred because this infrastructure has failed and some reaction needs to be taken that is either timely to make sure that no one else is hurt or is hurt, or that the financial implications are working in the city's favors to save them money. And as well as being able to make sure that, you know, several of the districts in order, if we were to not have this um, bonding authority, it would allow for the decreasing opportunities for large uh, rate increases. We would be able to be able to bond, we'd be able to pay it out in a, more long-term systematic manner as opposed to having a large increase which we know would be negative to our citizens and their ability to react to it therefore we're asking to react it into a more proactive way than a reactive way okay but you said the failure of a water controlled structure and i agree that is an emergency whether it's declared or not it is an emergency it failed but when I heard Miss Julie talking, it sounded more like, hey, we need to do these water control structures, or hey, this bridge is close to failing. So yeah. I'm hearing different language and intentions <coughs> on what this is going to be for public safety. Let me clarify further. So in an example of what Miss Julie Valia was saying, if we need to fix 10 water control structures. 
we're not coming to you with emergency um, authority or public safety needs because they don't qualify under the direct authority that we're asking you for a commission. You put them on a regular uh, referendum as you would do today, and if the voters would still vote on it. But if those 10 were failing and we said, hey, in the next 12 months, they're going to fall out and we really need to do something and we have a vendor and we can make it work, then we would say, hey, we need to talk about doing this right now. Otherwise, we will wait for the next election and put it on there and then move with it um, as usual. The authority that we're asking you to spend now does not remove any and all authority to go to the citizens. We're asking you for what you as a board and us as a staff should be very aware of as it relates to how do you keep the public safe and protect taxpayers' dollars. And that was the intent. Thank you for that clarification. That, that helped a lot. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right, Vice Mayor. Yeah, um, in that same vein, it's basically things that aren't clear disasters or emergencies, but don't happen in the ordinary course of business. So were we to see that there was, as city manager said, an infrastructure issue that was looming and eminent may not be what would qualify as a serious emergency, but clearly something that is going to fail or is eminent to fail. But those conditions can be built into that option one with the proper language so that, you know, we would, you know, we would put some parameters around how we, we bond out. Mm -hmm. um, and again, to, to reiterate what city manager said, If all of a sudden this month there was a, a late season hurricane of a devastating proportion, we would have no option. We would be forced, as we sit now, to hold a special election as soon as humanly possible, that it, you know, assuming we could get permission to do it. And that would cost the city a hundred grand on top of everything else it would cost us because. Right now, we're limited to this every two-year thing. And if a, a true emergency hit us in an off-season, we would have no option but to go out and hold a special election. That, that was the whole point of that. That's <laughs> why that came up. The, um, the other thing we can additionally do to create some safeguards, as you mentioned in your presentation, is to create a supermajority rather than a simple majority of a commission of three to two vote, a supermajority which would require four, in this case, four out of five and you know that's that much more comfort level that the vast majority of everybody on this commission felt comfortable with you know right. absolutely and let me remind everyone the the request of the bonding authority the burden of proof for that relies it lies on us you know we have the burden of proof to make sure that you understand the request and we can validate the concerns that the emergency authorization would be necessary and needed. If that is not met, then you would not authorize it and then we would sort of go in the way that we were going. So we feel very strongly that in those situations where it was warranted, we would have enough information to provide to you and then you would feel comfortable making that decision on behalf of the citizens you represent. Just to finish up before Commissioner McDowell takes over, um, to put this all in proper perspective, staff did glance, did touch on it initially. 
Michael did. Um, we are the only city that has these kinds of this kind of onerous restriction. Um, we are not some little municipality. We are huge. We're a two hundred and fifty million dollar budget with nearing a hundred thousand people in order to respond, in order to adjust, in order to properly run a government this size, a city this size, there has to be some level of authority and there has to be some level of trust. And that's really what's being asked here. There may have been very good reasons in the past for the citizens of this city to question its leadership and to pass these kinds of restrictions. But as this city grows, it is just unreasonable. And, and you know, I'm just willing to say it. People may take issue with it, but if the people of this city can't have confidence in a structured system of, of debt um, with the proper safeguards and the proper decision-making of its government and its leadership and its elected officials, then it just needs to elect new officials but by God, it needs to have the flexibility to operate a city this size. And that needs to be something everybody needs to think about, because if we're going to change this, citizens of Northport have to decide that they're willing to buy into this. Otherwise, all the time we're spending here is an absolute waste of time. Citizens need to take some comfort in the fact that we have professionally run city and we have elected officials that really work for the best interests of the people here. And, and I hope that they're ready to make that leap of faith. Okay. One more group to add to that list, um, Vice Mayor, is that we are very good at and very comfortable with getting outside independent third party opinions and consulting <clears throat> advice as well, even when the situation warrants, so that you're not solely relying, relying on people within the walls of City Hall or the Commission of Northport. Point. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Vice Mayor. And yeah, I'll piggyback off of what you just said there, because you had, now I can cross things off my list. <laughs> but yes, we have a representative form of government. So uh, we are have been elected to make decisions. And sometimes they're not easy decisions, but they're decisions that have to be made. And I know people complain about government moving so slowly, sometimes it's because we have all these restrictions in place rather than allowing those that were elected and are, are very qualified staff to make the best decisions to move forward. Um, something like this that we have in place is very, is very hindering. I mean, if we had a real problem, we'd have to you know, go through all this and people would wonder, how come that's not fixed yet? Well, we have to go through, through all of this. My one, que my last question is, and I'm sorry if you answered this. Have we an option one? Is there, a, is there a cap that's been established? No, not with option one, but with option three, there is a cap, and then also an emergency. Okay. Emergency. Is there a reason why staff for option one, which is what you're recommending, why you didn't recommend a cap with that one? Um. In case the emergency situation is more than 15 million, and um, some of the, like with the EN, you saw some of the costs are very significant. Right. Okay. Because you did say that the county is up to 20, 20 23 million? 28. 28 million. Yeah, and change. 
All right, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, I, I, there, for my level of comfort, there really needs to be a cap. Um, and, and I understand that emergencies happen in that, you know, just the debris of removal alone was 43 million, but this way we have, we have the benefit of being able to issue a bond for an emergency up to a specific dollar amount. Um, but then we also have our fund balance policy to help pick up that slack. Um, I, it, at this point in time, it really isn't what we want. The voters get to decide on this. So we have to make sure the voters have a level of comfort, not me, not anybody sitting up here, not staff. The voters need that level of comfort. And I really think that a, a cap may give them that. I don't know. I don't want to speak for our voters. But to leave it open-ended, especially after the last referendum, and the feedback I received from the last referendum, um, I, I am concerned that it may not pass. So I'm just throwing that out there for a bullet point to kind of think about. Um, so if, if this referendum does not pass, let me back up. We're going to be doing this referendum in primary or general election? If it doesn't pass, state that one more time, Commissioner. Are we doing this referendum that we're discussing today? Are we doing that at a primary referendum or at the general? It's the general in 24. Is what our goal is to achieve. Okay. All right. So for the project or for the language that we're talking about? To get this charter language. This, the, um, I thought. We were still waiting on direction from our consultant on the timing of when to put it on. But if we have two elections next year, ideally getting the bond language approval would go on the first one. And then the project that was related or what was needed, as we know right now, and you know, I'm thinking of our police station would be on the second one in the general election. So the first step is getting the language um, approved. And the second election would be for the actual project itself. Now, that's in an ideal world, and it may not work that way. But as we continue to work with the consultant, I think we'll have more information as it relates to the timing to bring forward to you. And, and that is exactly why I'm asking this question. If It's imperative that we know when this is going on because I don't want to squander an election to do the things that the commission has spoke about, water control structures, the police station, um, the bridges, those things still have to get done with or without this bond referendum, and I would hate to squander an opportunity to be able to put something out to bond, which would then delay these projects. And Commissioner, as we move forward with the deeper dive into the needs of our bonding issues, we are very um, cautiously aware that we do not want to put a high bond value in the general election, if you go out there and you do half a billion dollars, $500 million, that number is going to be uh, intimidating for any voter at any level. So being able to ask them, well, do you approve the language and then putting a high bond value on the same ballot is almost certain a certain way not to get it passed. So we're, we're trying to break it up, but as it relates to all the items you just mentioned that could go on or that we need, those items are all needed. 
but we most likely will not be bringing all of those items as for bond consideration uh, in the fall election of 2024. And the cap, and if you decide to put a cap on, whether it's a formula, whether it's you know arbitrary number, that's fine. But let's also remember there are various ways to engage our citizens before you get to an election, instead of just waiting at the election to see as a commissioner when you would say, yes, I feel like this is something we should vote for. You could have town halls, you could have surveys, you could have different things in, in, in theory in order to gauge their temperature that would help you in your decision making. May I follow up with that? It's on that same thing. Mm -hmm. State statute does not allow the government to expend money. And if we were to do surveys, that's kind of like expending money. Um, and so we have to be very cognizant on how we educate and how we get a pulse of our citizens because we, the government entities, cannot spend money on them. We can't sure we mail them. Do free I didn't say mail. I, I'm pretty I, sure there are state there are free ways to do surveys. But I get your point. We can't we can't spend money on surveys. That's fine. Survey isn't the only way to engage the community if you want to get their opinions before you make your decision. My point is we don't want to have to always wait and say a, a referendum is the way that we have to go. Okay, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, this is probably for the city clerk uh, when it comes down to the special elections. Approximately how long would it take to go for a special election for a referendum? And I know it's on timing and stuff like that. We can piggyback off an election that could be coming up like let's say next year but it's all through the supervisor of election. And the reason I'm getting to this point is Ian hit in September of 2022. The next election was November of 2022. And I don't believe there was enough time to be able to assess our needs and then put it on a referendum in that three month window. Is that true or close? I would say that is pretty accurate. Um, I don't have a way to determine how long it would take to get something to a special election because it ultimately is up to the county. We just let them know that we have an item for a special election and we can present dates to them, but it is ultimately up to them to say yes or no. We can do that if there is an election in another municipality. I know from the last time we talked about it with the county, um, they will say, why can you not put it on this one and piggyback on that? So it is ultimately up to them. And if they have a lot of things going on with the supervisor of elections, that will also push it out. I know they were um, reviewing some election, some things that were going on with the actual election process this last time. And they said that we would not have been able to get a special election at the time that we were looking at last time. It, they would have pushed us to another municipalities. Right. And, and then our needs falls into the hands of other people at that point. And depending on the timelines and stuff, you know, it's it's very difficult if we're in an emergency situation and we need to take care of stuff. So, you know, that's I just wanted to get that out there because it, it wouldn't have happened, you know, in, in a timely matter, even if it was six months later. That's still a little bit too long to get our needs and our citizens taken care of. True, um, Commissioner Emery, the. The answer to what we would do in that situation is that's why you have good financial controls in place to have whether it's the reserve that is been mentioned or the excess of that reserve and the cash flow ability to handle those uh, emergencies, which is what we were very fortunate to have based on our staff and our 
uh, pre-planning to order to cover that without having to ask the citizens for anything else as it related to that. And then we've gotten reimbursed in a timely manner. So we're coming back to sort of filling that bucket back up. But in the example of uh, um, an EN plus another EN, that's what makes us vulnerable. And the, the outside controls of the county and other um, entities that would help us is totally out of our control. What I don't want is a citizen looking back and saying, why didn't you, city of Northport, change and alter your abilities when you could in a time that you could have done it as opposed to leaving us vulnerable in a time of need? So this would sort of help us have stronger protection for that. Right, and I agree with you because we did have Ian and then we had a threat of Idalia. And luckily that wasn't as devastating as Ian was, but it could have been. True. Yes, sir. You know, and we are in hurricane season once again and everything. So we go through it every year. Hopefully it's mo most of them miss us, but hey, Ian got us bad and we need to learn from that. So I appreciate all your efforts. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, my last one has to do with timing. Um, and Commissioner Emmerich touched on how long it takes to do a special election. I know when we had um, the special election to get Mayor White, it took approximately five months to draft the ordinance and talk to the supervisor of elections and actually hold that election. But in all intents and purposes, to issue a bond for whatever emergency reason, if this was to get passed by the voters, would take five to six months anyways, because they have to talk with bond counsel. How is this going to be done so that it's not affecting our credit rating? We have to issue an ordinance and the commission has to hear it twice. And I pray that this is going to be done by ordinance and not resolution, but that's part of that conversation of what we're looking for. Um, so this isn't a quick and easy thing like, oh, we have an emergency and then a month later we can do two readings. Um, so unless you guys have things in the pipeline that we're not aware of that are emergency, that would scare the bejeebers out of me. So, ma'am, nothing in government is quick and easy. We all recognize that. But if you have an emergency in January and you have an election in November and it could get done in the five months as you referenced in May or June, why would you not do that as opposed to waiting to something that happens in November and then beginning that process from then? You should really be able to react as a government in a way that allows you to preserve public safety as quick as possible. Not quick, private quick, but quick as in government quick. And that still means checking um, through all the right steps. That does not mean taking shortcuts. It does not mean doing anything that isn't in the best fiscal responsibility of this municipality. It just means that you as a board would have the right to make a decision that was in the interest of the most people in order to make sure that we were completely whole as soon as possible. You understand that, but my point is comparing the timeline to do an ordinance, talk with bond council, get the commission to readings. It's going to take five or six months, just like a special election would. But with a special election, I recognize the fact that the voters ultimately would decide, is this something they want to approve if what we have before us doesn't get passed? 
Um, I, I agree, something needs to get passed. What that looks like, we have to be very careful because the voters are the ones in control, not us. And I really hope that there are going to be dollar limits on this. So that's all I've got to say because goal is to get something passed. And if it's not feeding the appetite of the voters, it's not going to get passed at all. Okay, uh, Vice Mayor, and then I think we'll move to public comments before I start looking for some consensus. Yeah, just to clarify this issue of a, a special election and then the, I mean, just to do a bond, okay, is a five to seven month process, I mean, realistically, whatever time frame it takes. But if you have to wait until a special election in order to begin that process, you're talking about what potentially could be a half a year or more to get to the special election, to get the voters to approve a bond, which would then start the process of obtaining the bond. So we're talking about double the time limit. That, I think, is what city manager was trying to point out. So that that's a, you know, to me, a no-brainer. I mean, but can you bring up the first slide, option one, because there were two parts to the, okay. So we have um, a public health and safety and a response to regulatory agencies. Those we're responding to a third party authority that tells us something needs to be done. When we get to infrastructure, including roads, bridges, water control structure, sanitation, water and sewer, or police fire and declared disaster, could those items have caps per event and not the public safety and health in response to regulatory agencies, which gives us some flexibility. A catastrophic hurricane, tornado, God forbid, that costs the city $100 million, I mean, to be trapped to a 15, 20, $25 million cap would be insane. But roads, bridges, water structures per project, a cap might be reasonable in those cases because the dollar costs to replace them or address the problem, you know, are certainly of a lesser dollar value and may give the voters more of a comfort trying to bridge the issue that Commissioner McDowell's bringing up. It's again, this has to, this is going to have to meet, you know, the, the comfort level of our of our voting public out there. So I'm trying to think of how do we protect ourselves from something humongous in nature versus what is also what we would consider an, an eminent emergency or crisis of a road, bridge, water control structure in nature, but that had some parameters on them from a dollar standpoint. Is that doable? It's certainly within your authority to, to do that, to set, to set the limits and to set uh, multipliers, which would increase those limits over time yeah. as things kind of get more expensive. So we could um, bring I, something back to, to your, play your, with. Your previous question, I get the, the sign from our bond council that 
takes about three to four months to get the bond. But that would we'll give us something to play with and create a little more structure to this whole thing. So it's a slight modification off option one, sort of should you, should you injecting a little option three into, into option one. Yes. And also, um, Mike Mayor, we want to remind you that there are other debt instruments other than just bonds. So there, we don't want to put everything just in the bond bucket. And um, okay, City Manager, you're on here. Did you? Yes, that, I was. I was going to say it? that. Um, I had another thought, but I, I'll bring it back. Okay. All right. So, if I may. Yes. Go ahead. So bond takes about three to four months to issue. Has the bonds that the voters approved for Price Boulevard already been issued? No. Because you wouldn't issue those bonds until you were finished with the design and the needs of the project. We are going through the project based on what Ian did that changed us off of the timeline that we would have been on to the timeline that we're on now. And the other thing I want to say was about, you know, the the waiting, uh, in my example of January, then something happening and then we issue in May um, versus, the versus the special election. And I heard Madam Clerk and her information regarding on factors that could affect that. The special elections cost money. We're talking about <clears throat> you being able to make a decision without using potentially $100,000 of taxpayers' dollars when everyone would say, yes, we understand that that's the emergency in a situation that you properly exercise your authority as an elected official, as opposed to saying, well, I need to go back to the citizens and ask them, can I replace this building that fell down that was necessarily necessary to replace? To us, it falls within the scope of responsibilities that we are charged with as we are all representing the most important people, our voters. Thank you. And if I can continue, because city manager opened the door, we're not just talking about bonds. We're talking about other debt being incurred. And, you know, if, is all of that, whatever avenue of debt being incurred, whether it's bond or a loan, is that covered in what we're talking about today? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of lots of talk about uh, getting the voters' confidence, and I know there. Are, I've talked to to people that, uh, and I've known people in my life who just don't want to spend any money on anything. But I, I. <laughs> No matter what it costs, they just, they want it for free. But uh, when things have to be done, they have to be done. They have to spend money uh, on things that I've never, in all the years I've lived here, I've never known a, a commission to just spend money on something frivolously and, and say, oops, that was a big mistake. Um, I mean, everything was well thought of, had a plan, staff presented what was being done, and um, this idea that, I know there are people out there that think that um, if we're not watching what you're doing, you're going to be spending money to send people to on a trip around the world or something. I don't, I don't know what, but we're talking about emergency situations. We're talking about public health and safety, being able to make those decisions 
and get things done so we can continue to live our lives and not have to worry about these, what I call the nuts and bolts of living. Like that's what your job is to take care of those things. And what you, <coughs> this is a tool you need to get it done. I'm, I say, great, this is what we need to do. Um, I guess we do have to discuss about a ca the caps. I like the vice mayor's idea about um, different caps for different situations here with the two check marks. Those are two completely different segments here. So um, at this time, I'd like to ask if there's any public comment. Thank you. Jasmine Bowman, public referendum should always be part of any decisions made about more borrowing. And that's all thank you. Oh, okay. All right, so uh, yes, city. You, you about to say what, what next and what do you, we want from you? Yeah. Uh, so, so the conversation that we heard, we know we will bring you back uh, language that, you know, has option one and option three combined based on, you know, the cap conversation definitions about the emergency, what does that mean, and how to better get your comfort level there as well. The bond instruments sort of flush them out in ways that would still give you maybe caps or um, either either some caps or some guidance towards how those dollar amounts can be factored in in your decisions and see what the appetite of the board is regarding some of those um, answers and discussions. Okay, so you don't need a consensus for those things. You got that? I, yeah. Yeah. A consensus would be great with direction of what you're looking for specifically, but we know about having to, to come back, what to present, not only to the, to the Charter um, Advisory Board, mm -hmm. but also to bring back what you're looking for. Right. Okay. Uh, may I have the floor? Yes. Well, um, I'll raise a question to that. Do we need, I mean, in trying to prepare or trying to present a consensus, are we not overly qualifying this? We've had a pretty flexible discussion here, and I'm wondering, would it, and again, I'm looking for direction more from city manager as well as, as city attorney, do we want to bring forth a consensus, or, or, or do you folks have a, a, a comfort level for the general parameters of what we're looking for and see what might be brought back? I'm concerned only about us over-qualifying this and, and not giving you as much flexibility um, to really come up with something. You've heard everything we've had to say. We're also missing one commissioner. And, and this is not something that, that's going to be a, a real quick and final decision. It, it's going to be a bit of a process here. It, I'm just wondering, do you need us to really do a consensus? It's up to you. Thank you, Vice uh, Mayor. And I, I believe we, uh, Deputy City Attorney Golan, he's right in asking for a consensus as it relates to getting the most definitive direction. I don't think you will get consensus on any direction because you're not all in agreement with what that should look like. And if you overqualify it or put us in a box, it may restrict us to what we're able to sort of uh, explore further and bring back to you for your final decision making. That, which is why I sort of recapped the, the buckets. But I believe that we all have been given sufficient direction and heard enough information for us to go continue to develop this through the process. We are on a timeline based on what we do because of the um, deadlines. Yes, that are related to 
getting the language approved, getting the language, you know, on the referendum. All those timelines are sitting in front of us, which is why we didn't want to sort of continue the item to a separate meeting in early 2024. So, so based on what we've heard, you know, I feel very good as to what you do, but I would like to turn it over to uh, Deputy City Attorney uh, Golan for further discussion. Thank you. Uh, I, I respect what you're saying with not having a consensus. It would make, do the, do the timelines that we are trying to get into and hitting the charter's current requirements to go to Charter Review Advisory Board to get their, uh, their advisement for the commission. If you could give a broad consensus, something that you would like to see, it would, it would be helpful if, um, if you choose not to do that, that is fine too. We, city, we can work with city manager's office to uh, provide direction or provide language based on, on what okay. you can provide. All right, so do I have someone, do you have a consensus? I'll try. Offer it. You wanna try? I'll try it. Uh, okay. To offer, we uh, consensus that we instruct city attorney, city, manager, uh, staff to come back with a proposed uh, charter amendment based on option one with consideration of some caps, caps for non-emergency or all emergency, inclusive of some caps um, for mission to review, trying to keep it as general as possible. Is there something more you'd like to see there, Mike? Me? Whatever you'd like. Commissioner <laughs> <laughs> Riddell, did you want to add something to that? Yeah. Um, I, I understand why city attorney needs uh, consensuses. This is why I really don't like workshops because we could, if we had it on a commission meeting, we could get a motion and majority rule. Okay, but we're we're, but a we're at a workshop. Okay, so, so now we just have we have only a consensus as opposed to clear and decisive direction to city manager. Um, if we start small, small bites of the apple, to talk about caps talk about what we want in this recommendation for option one, it might give him a little bit clearer instead of putting it all in one bucket, little bites of the apple of the bucket. Well, it might be more beneficial. Uh, let's see what we get with that, with your consensus. Right. But I think that was pretty Good. broad. You didn't set any cap limits on there. You said to have caps for those two bullet points, those, right. two, check, those two separate um, components there. So Commissioner Emmerich? Yeah, I was I was in agreement with that, um, with the thing being with the caps going on. But I would like to stay conducive to what the county has. I don't want to cut us short on that. You know, they're at twenty eight million. I I'm not t giving you a cutoff, but right around thirty million would be where I was rather than having it all wide open. You know, on those other areas. So that's what I'm looking at. So. I'm not giving you a number. That's just okay. I can agree with some caps. All right. So you're yep. a yes. I'm a yes. Vice Mayor. I'm a yes. I'm a yes with that. Just get, get us started. 
Commissioner McDowell. What happens when you bring it back? Mm -hmm. It's all up to the voters. And you please be cognizant if you want this to pass. You have to make sure that the voters are going to be amenable to the caps, $30 million. Sitting up here is totally different than sitting out there. And if I had to vote on this as a citizen, not being an elected official, not understanding $30 million would scare the bejeebers out of me. And I'd say, hell no. Well, that's that's <laughs> going to be a future discussion. Oh, that's, yeah. You're, you're, you're right at, at the voting box. Yeah. So yeah. you can either be safe and prepared or I, you can I say, get, I hell get no. That. I get that. But we have to make sure that the citizens are going to be amenable to this. Did you need another one or yes? Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. The, the the voters ultimately make their decisions and when they vote, they vote on behalf of what they think uh, is in the best interest of their selves. You as a board today, we're asking you, which is what you're charged with, which is to think about the most people and the good for the most of the city. That's the difference. And so when we look at a workshop, the workshop, we had these conversations. This has been an hour and a half long conversation that can you imagine tacking it onto a night meeting? Can you imagine tacking it onto an already busy agenda? We need direction so we don't go in down the wrong rabbit hole and waste time. Wasting staff time is equivalent to wasting taxpayer dollars. So our goal here is to get the, get the consensus, get the direction, so that we can then narrowly focus our efforts into something that not only is time insensitive, it might be just as important as it is time insensitive. And we're in a sort of a, of a pickle of making sure that we prepare properly for the future, but we have to make sure that we get the right direction from you as um, Deputy City Attorney Golan said today as much as possible. Okay, so I just want to get clear, yeah, yes. just clarity for one. You are asking for caps. Are you looking for caps per category? That's what Vice Mayor was talking about. Bring up that those first. Little, bring, up that bring up that first screen again. Those two check mark. Yeah. So basically, it's the consensus to bring back with us option one um, with some caps on the bottom three or the bottom two infrastructure, including roads, bridges, water control structure, sanitation, water and sewer, and police, fire, and declared disaster. Well, that falls onto the public's health safety. and safety. Right. So that would be whatever cap is that would apply to all three of those little arrows. Well, not necessarily because public health and safety with- Well, that's what they're determining is public health and safety. The regulatory agency, though, I would hate to see a cap on regulatory on a response to regulatory agency if swift mud came in made a declaration we needed to do something and it turned out to be a 30 million dollar expense and we had a cap per event of 15 million dollars or 20 million dollars that would severely restrict us to me the bottom two items there are the items where in my personal opinion i felt there were some caps that could be instituted but when it comes to a declared local, state, federal emergency, or in terms of public health and safety, a response to a regulatory agency, those things I don't think you can put a cap on or should put a cap on because they could be huge and they could be extremely restrictive. It's the bottom two items there that I felt would warrant some dollar caps. All right, is Again, that what that you would come back with though? Caps, and then at that time we could discuss if we wanted to break it up. But my understanding was 
those three bullet points fell under public health and safety. Correct, and um, Madam Mayor, so what I was just thinking was it would be a cap on the emergency category versus a cap on the public safety category. I went back to look and see what the, the county does and their dollar limit is you know, for a project. So I heard earlier there was some appetite to follow what the county does, which I thought was very good to keep us in alignment with one of the you know, biggest uh, jurisdictions around us. So maybe following their model based on how they do it, because we shouldn't be sitting here trying to reinvent the wheel. Let's do something that someone successfully around us has done that we agree to and sort of piggyback off of their model. Okay. And when it comes back, that's when we could debate. Okay. Commissioner Emmerich? Yeah, one last thing. And basically, they're following what state law allows. So that's, right. that's the bottom line, you know, in my opinion. So we can't do anything illegal. All right. Did you say you had something else, attorney, deputy oh. attorney going? Uh, no, Madam Mayor. I'm good. You got what you need? Yes, ma'am. City manager? I'm good. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Okay. All right. Uh, we did public comment. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> we want to move on to item B, or does anybody need a short break? Yeah, let's take a short break. What do you want? How much time? Mayor. Ten minutes. Okay. Ten minutes. Batteries, a radio, a good break. I guess any break is a good break. Anything, uh, yeah. any emergency information? All so, right, we're on to item B discussion and possible direction regarding the draft of the Unified Land Development Code, Chapter 4, Site Development, Part 2. City Manager, this is your item. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, this this discussion and action regarding Unified Land Development Code Chapter 4, Part 2 is in alignment with what you and the Commission have received and reviewed over the course of multiple months. We are headed towards completion of this uh, very sooner rather than later, and that's kind of exciting. Uh, but we do have our team here, uh, Ms. Katie Boland, to go through this with us a little bit further as we get more input and direction in the workshop so that we can bring you for some action in the future. So I'll turn it over to Ms. Katie. Give me one second. All right, good morning. Uh, for the record, Katie Wellner, Planner 3 with the City of Northport. So today we're going to talk about ULDC Chapter 4, Part 2. Um, so my presentation basically covers uh, updates on Chapters 1 through 3. Um, chapter 4, Part 2, I'm going to go over what we went over last time, at, at least briefly, just to, so that you know what we covered last time and then what the second part is. I'm going to go over the article specifics and the major changes. Um, I included the consensus items. Um, there's, I think, six of those. Um, what the next steps are, and then questions and comments at the end. So um, we don't have any major project updates. Uh, chapters one through three, are, you guys have all seen. We don't have any major changes to those. One of the big changes uh, is that we are going to have six chapters instead of five chapters. We're going to move signs to their own chapter. They will be chapter five. That was sort of at the recommendation of our legal counsel, just in case 
in the future we are ever challenged, it's it will remain in one chapter instead of being spread out through multiple chapters. It just sort of helps us. So that's the big change there is that chapter five will be signs um, and that, that we'll have six chapters instead of five. So chapter four is all about site development. In our previous workshop, we went over part one. So that talked about rules of measurements, buffers, development standards, fire safety, lighting, marine improvements, open space, and parking and loading. Part two includes stormwater subdivisions, transportation, and utilities. So um, really in part two, not a whole lot changed from what our current code says. A lot of these are sort of um, engineering specific type standards. And so we, there's just not a, a huge amount of change. So article 10 is on stormwater. Basically, the major change to most of these articles uh, is that the engineering or public works department is going to create an engineering design manual. So a lot of those specifics about like road compaction and, uh, you know, water flow things that are specific to engineering standards are not going to be part of the ULDC, which will make it a little bit easier for them to update over time as they need to. So nothing earthbreaking or earth shattering in, in stormwater. Um, most of the changes, again, are going to be in the engineering design manual. We just took out all of those specifics. So the stormwater chapter is about the same as what we have now. Subdivisions, again, is about the same as what we have now. The big change, um, if you can call it a big change, was that a lot of our general standards had been located in the, the subdivision section. We instead have moved those out to the applicable sections in the rest of chapter four. So um, subdivision still has basically the same requirements for addressing easements, lots and blocks, orientation to natural features, monuments, and those are monuments like the surveying monuments, um, like the little monuments that are in the corner of your property. <laughs> uh, the stakes, that's the word I was looking for. Um, Park space, public amenities, roads and sidewalks, stormwater management, utilities. And in the subdivision section specifically for roads and sidewalks, stormwater management, and utilities, basically it says to look at the requirements that are in the rest of Chapter 4. Um, article 12, it's all about transportation. Um, so basically it, it took the broad categories from what was previously in our transportation section or the roads and sidewalks se section. So um, again, all of those specific engineering standards will be in the engineering design manual. They're currently working on that. It is being developed with this in mind. And so um, this article just gives the like broad overview. It tells you that you have to have a public, public works permit. Um, it gives you some general you know, minimum right-of-way widths, turning radii, that we require sidewalks, um, that we want bike lanes and multimodal trails, and how to do street names. And uh, we sort of left it as, as a skeleton so that the engineering design manual can then fill in the gaps. And then Article 13 is all about water. This is basically the same as our current water standards, or utilities. Most of it is water related, some of it is non-water related. Um, with utilities, 
this is really just a reorganization of all of the standards that we currently have so that they're a little bit easier to understand. So we broke them down into potable water systems, wastewater systems, reuse water systems, and then other utilities. So that other utilities is where um, cable, electricity, those types of things would be wrapped in. So that's sort of my brief overview of the chapter. Um, because this is sort of a engineering specific section, uh, we don't have a whole lot of more details that we really need to go into. Of course, we're happy to answer questions. We did have six consensus items um, that were sort of a combination of the part one and part two, because uh, one of the commissioners was absent for the workshop for the part one. Um, so I can either go over questions now and then go through the consensus items, or we can go through the consensus items. It is up to commission. Okay. Um, do you want to take your questions first on what was presented, or just get straight to the consensus items? Does it matter? I'd like to see what they want to know. Yeah, I like to. I like to know what the consensus items are. Okay. So we have six consensus items. Um, I sort of lump them together by topic. So the first one uh, relates to large palms being substituted for canopy trees on a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, this was in the landscaping material or the buffers and landscaping, landscaping um, or master tree lists in article three of the chapter. Um, so this is from part one. Uh, one of the commissioners has requested that we do not allow substitution on a one-to-one -one ratio, that we keep it at a three-to-one for large palms as well as smaller palms. Um, so that would be my first consensus item. Okay. Um, so what do you want to go from here? Talk about and questions. You want to ask questions, Vice Mayor? Um, what kind of input have you gotten with regard? Can you keep that up there? Yeah, there we go. Um, I mean, uh, personally, I'm an advocate of palm trees as as uh, as canopy trees. I I think you know a lot of palm trees lend themselves to it. Um, I, I'm not a, a big fan of uh, black olives and 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 the other options there and and from my gauge on citizens that I've talked to, they're of a like mind. So I'm, but I'm curious as to what our, our folks, uh, you know, our, our, our agronomist people, you know, what, what are they telling us? You know, are they comfortable with this? Is that their recommendation? Um, I don't remember where, I know that the, the, sorry, I'll backtrack for a second. The ratio or the one-to-one -one ratio for the palms that we included, uh, they're specifically large, large palms. They have over 20 feet of spread for their um, palm fronds. So you're looking at particularly large palm trees. The one-to-one -one ratio um, is used in other jurisdictions for these types of palms. Um, staff thinks, staff believes that allowing these in some instances, you know, we the landscaping code already doesn't allow you to substitute more than, I think it's 
40% of your tree requirement with palm trees anyways. So this would be a substitution that would allow some variation in the types of trees that we would see um, counted towards canopy trees. And I, I, I think it would just add variety. And with regard to number two here, when we talk about palm trees as street trees, define street trees for us. So the city has a street tree requirement um, for new development. Um, so this would be a type of tree that a developer could add in the right of way um, as a street tree. Um, street trees have multiple purposes. They're to provide shade. They help with, as crazy as it sounds, um, traffic and speeding. Uh, they help in a lot of ways. Um, so they're, while a palm tree is not going to provide the shade over a street that an oak tree will, palm tree won't, roots won't interfere with the pavement. You're still going to get a lot of those other benefits of having the trees. Um, and again, it'll pr provide some variety in, in our streetscape. Okay. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, the only reason why I requested this is because the other palms that were in that section, many of them were three to one. The two that I had requested was the royal palms that are Cuban and Florida um, be replaced at three to one also because the other ones are three to one. Um, that, that is the reason why I was requesting it and we need a consensus on it. It's not all palms are one to one. There are many other palms that are three to one in that list. Okay, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, um, I know she had just mentioned the royal palms, but do queen palms fall under that category as large palms as well? Let me look it up. Is there another name that those would go by? Uh, queen bee palm? No, I don't no. know. It's always I don't, been queen palms. I don't see queen palms specifically on the list. I can double check. To, uh, I tried to include Florida native, um, and most of the, the tree list came from our existing tree list, but I, did, I don't see that on there, but it could be it goes by a different name. And, and that could be true. Um, my main thing is, is when they're going three to one, and I understand how big the royals get, they're normally they're in a grouping, aren't they? If it's mm -hmm. three to one, so it's kind of hard to group these large trees in an area. Correct. So I, I could deal with the large palms as a one to one. Um, and should they be allowed as street trees? Now, this is where my, my main question comes in. Since it's on the developer, who's maintaining all those palm trees? Because once they become on the street, then it could be the city's responsibility to make sure that those palms are trimmed and taken out of the roadway and yada, yada, yada. And you've already mentioned that, yeah, they're less damaging than the oak trees, but I believe in some of your areas there, you've got root barriers that are going to be in place to where the roots will not go towards the sidewalks and everything. So, you know, it's sort of like a conundrum. To me. I think it depends on the, the ownership, but I'm not entirely sure how we deal with that now. 
Chesapeake Public Works Director. So if those palm trees or whatever trees are planted uh, within the city right-of-way, that's an improvement to the right-of-way that the property owner made. They would be the responsibility of the property owner to maintain. Okay, and, and if they don't maintain them and we've got sanitation trucks going down there and we're getting battered by palm fronds or oak limbs, whatever the tree may be, how are we going to rectify that? Sure, it would go to code enforcement first. Uh, if it's a safety issue, then then public works would take care of it. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm a little iffy on the on the street tree basis, but I understand it's different and it, it may be more welcoming because we are in the south and it's tropical and this, that, and the other. So I just didn't want those big ones to be grouped together because that's gonna be nearly impossible. Thank you. Okay, um, and just to clarify, you said that should that should be one to, a one to three ratio, not a one to one. Um, no, for the large palms, we have a few that are one to one, and there are a few other palm trees that are a three to one ratio. Okay, okay. So this question was specifically about the one to one ratio. One to one. Okay. Uh, well, it's no big secret. I'm not not in favor of this at all. Palms are not trees and especially if we're talking about canopy canopy goes over us um whereas palms really don't provide that these are royal palms you have here and i know these were planted at the coco plum and also at culver's and people talk all the time about the sea of asphalt in, in those parking lots because palms were used as opposed to to actual trees and there's a reason again for canopy trees it's to it's to provide cooling to shade and also um, you, you're not going to get the same type of cooling effects that you do with um, with trees when you have the the water that comes up um, out through the through the, the the trunk and out through the leaves up to 15 percent you can have your temperature reduce under trees. That doesn't happen under a palm. Um, and same thing with street trees. The palms are not gonna give you that kind of, of uh, shade. And we're talking about providing shade for not just the roadway, but typically we're talking about the sidewalks. And as, as the Commissioner Emmerich said, there are ways to accommodate the roots. And that really is not, that's an exception when you're talking about problems with sidewalks, because um, I've been up to all the developments up in, in Sarasota, the city of Sarasota and through the county on Honoré. And even when they did have some, have some lifting, okay, they, they replaced the sidewalk and th that's it, they kept the trees. They didn't take the trees out because that's the reason why you're walking on those sidewalks and biking on the sidewalks is because it's shaded. You're not gonna get that with, with a palm. So, um, you're not going to get a, a, a yes for me for this at all. So what do we want to do? Uh, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, I only spoke to number one consensus because I thought we were just taking them one at a time. But since they're being lumped together, this is precisely why I mentioned um, the street trees, um, the palm trees for street trees. They don't offer shade. They, they, they're just there for prettiness. And then to Commissioner Emmerich's point, I was concerned also about the maintenance of them. Um, yeah, the property owner's supposed to maintain them, but we know how that works sometimes. <laughs> so um, I, I am amenable to and requested that they be removed for palm trees being shade trees and street trees. 
Um, this is why it is up for consensus request. So, Mayor, if there's no other, oh, well, uh, Vice Mayor, you're still yeah, here. I, you know, the only concern I have is, well, I see the points Commissioner Emmerich and McDowell and and Mayor White have have brought up regarding shade issues, the cooling issues, and all the rest. We went through a hurricane, and the vast majority of trees that came down were black olive trees, oak trees, trees that have lousy roots because basically they just topple over. They, especially when they're incorrectly watered, which is what happens throughout the city. So the more they get watered, even though they're supposed to only in their first year, uh, when you water oak trees, those roots stay high. Look at what we saw all over the city, trees down. And, and they weren't palm trees, they were oaks. And throughout the city, I mean, everywhere I went, people said, they're not really going to make me replant these awful trees again, are they? So, you know, I appreciate the need for shade and all the rest. I, I just raise it as, a, as an issue to be discussed because by no means am I an expert in this area. And, you know, it, it's really a question of what we want to do. I mean, if it's, you know, maybe I, I really don't know how to solve this problem, but, but certainly doing the same thing over and over again and running the risk of these trees going down every time there's a major storm, which is what's going to happen, you know, just doesn't seem intelligent to me. And, and, uh, so I don't know. I don't have any real suggestion. I'm just offering up an alternative perspective on this. Okay. And, and I, I, I am going to respond Good. to some of that. Good, because you know more than I me know about you, this. You were, you were just <laughs> digging, hoping I would say something. Yes. But yes, you know, Hurricane Ian had 150 mile an hour winds. We did have trees that went down. They, the oak trees on Sumter had very dense canopies. They offered a lot of resistance. Um, and eventually they succumbed. That is, is nature. It doesn't mean that you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there's a lot of people, including myself, I still have all the original trees that were left when my house was built 30 years ago, and I know that they saved my house. I didn't have one shingle that, um, that left my roof. And again, when you see a, a tree that fell on somebody's house, that's very dramatic, and you're going to see that, but you're also not seeing how many houses were saved because they did have undeveloped lots next to them and they, they took the brunt of, of that wind. Um, so as far as oaks, if they're properly pruned and thinned out, that the, the wind could pass through a little better. And again, as Commissioner McDowell said, the whole point of street trees and, have, and putting trees in development projects is for shade, is to have places for people to gather and to, to get some relief from the sun. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't know, black olives, that, I, that is not a common tree. That's um, a Welland Park tree. That's a Welland Park tree. Is there a black olive? It's also called something else. Well, it's there's a, a different, it's an there's a different species that's a shady lady. Shady. That's not a black olive. And shady ladies are not native, but they are Florida friendly. Um, and they are plant, they plant them a lot as, as, as street trees um, around. But um we use them interchangeably. I didn't okay. know they were actually different. All right. So looking for a consensus on something. Well, ask for a consensus yeah. here. Um, I'll start with number two because it seems to, um, 
I will ask for a consensus that palm trees, specifically the mule palm, the royal palm, Cuba, the royal palm, Florida, be removed as a street tree. Okay, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, I agree with that. Vice Mayor. Yeah, I'm going to go along with you all since you know more than me. Yes. I'm a yes. Yes, I'm a yes. And I'm a yes. <laughs> so that is removed. This next one, we might have a little bit conversation additional. I don't know. But to substitute the palm trees um, to be three to one for the Royal Palm Cuba, the Royal <coughs> Palm Florida, to be three to one as opposed to what is on as one to one. Is that only for those particular? Palms? Those are the only only ones that are. Oh, and then Bismarck Palm, but Bismarck Palms are huge, so I left that. They're huge, and they're and they're again, they're not even native. I mean, what about the cabbage palms? Are they are they already? Cabbage three palms to one? are already three to one. Okay, so it's just these particular. These two are what I I stuck with, but if you want to add Bismarck Palm, I thought they gave a little bit more shade and had a little bit more distinction than the Florida and Cuba Royal Palms. Those are the only ones that are one-to-one. -one. Okay, and just to clarify, canopy trees, this would apply to development sites when no, you- No, this isn't, no, this is palms. In this section table is called palms. The majority of them are three to one. The two that I requested the mm -hmm. consensus on are listed as one to one. Okay. So I am requesting a consensus to change. So I guess my question is, wh when, where would this be used? We were talking about a three to one that would be used in terms of what? So all all over the city, we have canopy tree requirements. Right. Um, we, for a couple of the larger palms, would allow them to be a one to one substitution for a canopy tree. However. The code specifies that you cannot have more than 50% of your trees substituted with palms. With palms. Right. So you would still get your canopy trees. This would just be an alternative where some of them could count towards canopy trees as opposed to understory trees. Okay. So the so what we're asking, what we're top is that is that right, Commissioner McDowell? What? So we have multiple lists on this tree list. One of the lists is canopy trees. These palms are not listed as canopy mm -hmm. trees. Then there's another list of understory trees. These palms are not listed as understory trees. There's a third list that's called palms. They're in mm -hmm. this list for palms. And then the next list, which we've already talked about, is street trees. I am requesting to have the ratio from one to one be three to one, for these royal palm trees. I'm still not clear because you said it would be as a canopy. So, yes. So there are th three palm trees that are the two types of royal palms and the Bismarck palms that we, instead of doing a three to one ratio uh, as a replacement for a canopy, canopy tree, tree, we allowed a one to one because they are particularly large palm trees. So, or palms, I know that they're not trees. <laughs> um, uh, so the 
commissioner's re request was to for the two royal palms to change that substitution ratio from one to one to three to one. Um, so that's that's what this consensus item is. Okay, in order for it to qualify as, as a being canopy, a canopy yes. but still no more than fifty percent can be correct. Palms. Okay. All right, Commissioner Riedel, are we is that good? One to three is what you're asking for. Three to one. Three to one. Yes. Okay. So you're a yes. I'll, I'll be a yes with that. Vice Mayor. All right, I'll be a yes. This is where I'm a little stuck because I, I don't think that they're going to be aesthetically pleasing at three to one at the size that they're at. And I don't want to replace canopy trees at all either. I would just as soon make these, you know, like extras. If, if, you know, if they wanted this in their yard, it doesn't count on what we're asking them to do, but it could be an accessory type tree on their property. So. I mean, I'll be a yes to go along with the board, but I'm really not in favor of putting three huge palms on a property. So, and I get what you're saying, but I but if, when you're saying no more than fifty percent can be palms, that wouldn't be physically possible to have three Bismarcks. I would, I think, that on on a quarter acre lot, that's just not going to happen because they are monster. Um, Okay, so we have both of those taken care of yep. for that consensus. All right, thank you, Miss Katie. Okay, what was the next one? All right, so the next two um, relate to single-family residential development, um, sort of in a similar vein. Should there be a minimum tree requirement for residential development? Right now, the code only requires shrubs. The proposed new code requires shrubs and trees. Um, the commissioner's request was to not require trees as there's been some concern about how it'll impact the drain field. However, um, the code does have some alternatives for accent trees in the front, sh shade trees in the back, um, so on and so forth. So there are there is some flexibility there. The second one on this slide is do we want to require residential development in the R1 district to have a garage? And do we want to require a, a size for that garage? So we can take those together separately. Um, but those, those are the two for this slide. Okay, so number three is about minimum tree requirement. And you're saying right now we don't have that? Right now we only require shrubs um, and we don't have a tree requirement for That's single right. family properties. It almost looks like it was taken out last minute. Um, most places, including Cape Coral, uh, which is a very similar community to ours, <clears throat> excuse me, um, have a tree requirement for single family properties. Stu. Well, you, no. you can argue that it was 35% at maturity. Yeah, right. Um, did you, where is the, I'm sorry, where is the page where it's, you do have the, um, tree. I'm sorry, I can't find it now. It's section 4.3.5. Um, I don't know what page it's on because I have my notes that I submitted. Ms. Katie, do you know where that is about the trees? Um, 
Landscaping for single and two family dwellings is yeah. on page 18 okay. of the draft code. And I have where, it up on the screen. Okay, because that's where it's saying that you had to have um, two canopy trees for every 7,500 square feet, correct? Correct. Um, so a 10,000 square foot lot would be about three trees. It doesn't quite get there. Am I, am I, am I uh, right? Yes. Okay. yes. <clears throat> okay, so that's what you're proposing. Correct. Okay. Um, speak to my request. Yes. Thank you. Yes. First off, applicability is not in our draft. Did that get added after our draft? The applicability section was added based off of my notes to your uh, chapter four comments to clarify which properties apply. So this is my working draft. So it, it is not 100% the same as the one that was okay. submitted. And since you brought up my notes for, for this, um, when I submitted my questions, comments thing last week, um, the thing that I received back didn't have any comments or answers to my questions. It was blank. Did they fall off somehow? Did I get the wrong document? I'm not sure. We we definitely created comments back. I never on. received them, ma'am. So we'll make sure that you get them. I, I would appreciate it because I didn't receive them. I just received exactly what I submitted to you. Maybe it was sent to my fellow commissioners for today's discussion, but usually the comments are also included. I didn't receive them. Anyhow, so the reason why I had requested that we have this discussion is because when we approved the tree um, code, we allowed the property owner for single family residential to determine if they wanted to have trees on their property or not. And the overwhelming majority was it's single family residential, they're 80 by 120 lots. This will require, I have an 80 by 120 lot, it's approximately 10,025 square feet, and I would be required to have four canopy trees and understory trees, and because it's more than 7,500 square feet. So the, I took my situation and applied it to the pre-platted lots because the majority of pre-platted lots are more than 7,500 square feet. So then you would have to double this. And a lot of people, especially after Hurricane Ian, don't want any trees on their property because of the damage to their pool cages and their homes. And God only knows what else and the cost to remove them after the hurricane. So this is why I put it on there that we need to have this discussion. I can still plant a tree if I choose, but this is mandating that I have a minimum of four canopy trees or its equivalents on my property when, if I'm developing a new home, because you can't make me now. Um, so I just wanted to have that conversation with you guys because we took it out of the code requiring trees. If, if they want to have trees, they get credits. And that was, it was their choice then. But this is now putting it back in that they must have. So I really hope that we can have a conversation about this. 
Okay. Um, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, this is at the development stage, correct? Okay. Yeah, this well, is family. Correct. It's I understand. Oh, okay. All right. Two things. One, the comments, um, I was out last week, so I didn't see any emails until this morning. Um, but I did look at that email this morning that was sent, um, the questions that you that the commissioner had that I looked at the email that was sent to all of the commissioners and I opened that document. If you look in that document, the there are small yellow boxes mm -hmm. in embedded in that document. You have to hover over those yellow boxes. If you just try to print it out, it's not you're not going to see the comments. But in the digital form, those small yellow boxes, if you hover over that, it's going to expand and you'll see the response from staff. Um, I looked at, I read all of the responses this morning and it, they were in the document that was sent off. When I went to go print it out, I didn't Correct. print all of it, so they didn't show up. So that's why I'm saying they there were no comments. The comments are in the digital document. <laughs> I, so if you if you just open the digital document on your pad, you'll be able to hover over those boxes and see those comments. Um, but yes, we are talking about the development stage. This would not apply to homes that are already existing. Mm -hmm. um, if your if your lot is twelve thousand square feet, um, then you have two canopy trees required. It doesn't round up to the next number. Um, you don't. Another tree wouldn't kick in until you have another seventy five hundred square feet. Okay. So, um, and it's very common. I mean, it's almost unheard of for a city not to have a tree requirement on single family properties. Um, even with well and septic, it's very easy to accommodate um, these canopy trees. And I do recall some of the discussions when um, that requirement was taken out. I was when I first started with the city. And my recollection was a lot of the reason for it being taken out was because of problems with enforcement that had happened in the past um, and trying to ensure that those trees remained. I can tell you in every jurisdiction I've worked in, we have not had that issue because we, have, we do enforce. There are easy methods for enforcement of that, of that um, provision um, and ongoing uh, enforcement of that. So um, I'm confident we could enforce that um, without any any problems. I don't, I don't quite understand all of the enforcement issues that happened in the past. I know there were issues with builders taking the trees out and moving them around, but um, in, in every jurisdiction I've worked in, we've managed not to have that uh, problem. And so I think we can circumvent that. Can you respond? Um, I got the floor right yeah. now. So I'm in the oh, middle of my question. Yeah. Um, do fruit trees some certain fruit trees would they qualify as they would have for the, for the required trees they would have to be on our approved tree list okay do you have any fruit trees like the orange or grapefruit or anything like that that grow fairly large that could be sustained by the people as well There are, there's, it does say well, citrus, citrus trees are okay. understory trees. Understory. Right. I know that the average height of like, the average orange tree is like 15 feet, whereas mm -hmm. like the average height of a mango tree is like 30 feet. Right. So it is something that we could look into where perhaps we can add in if they're not there already. Some fruit trees like mangoes or avocado trees, which are a little bit larger than your average citrus tree. Um, 
as an allowable uh, canopy it, tree. It would give them options and it would benefit both because mm -hmm. A, you're getting a tree and B, they're getting a product off of their tree and they can boast to the neighbors, hey, I got the most avocados this season and here, take some. I mean, it's just something to work with. And, and I have no issues with having a couple trees on, on the developed property either. So, tell ahead. Okay. Vice Mayor. Am I correct yeah. in planned development communities, whether it be Wellham Park, uh, Toledo Village that's coming up, any of these others, they all have requirements, don't yes. they? Yes. They have both requirements for the subdivision and requirements for the individual right. lots. And so I see no reason why single family residential properties shouldn't have those same requirements. Just seems consistent to me. That's all I have. Okay. Um, I just wanted to uh, thank you for the clarification about the, the math here. So 10,000 square feet, which is typically a quarter acre lot, would just require two trees mm -hmm. and one has to be in the front. Is that what this is saying? It says at least one canopy tree or the equivalent number of understory trees understory. or palms. Okay. So and this is another place where that, that palm ratio could come into play, where if they don't have enough room in their front yard for mm -hmm. a full canopy tree, they could do one royal palm in the front yard as a one-to-one -one ratio, or they could do three small palms uh, on a three-to-one ratio. Right. So that's okay. how that works in. And I just wanted to put it out there for the public record. You can plant, as, as the director has said, you can have trees in the front yard. Just having a drain field doesn't mean you can't put anything on their selection and placement, yes, very important, but you can. Um, I know from my own experience, and, and you can drive around and see people who have huge oak trees in their front front yards, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean just because you have septic you can't you can't do that. Um, and just the fruit and avocado and mango trees, yeah, I, I like people having that option. But again, if you're talking about hurricane resistant. They're not, all right? They're, again, none of those are native, and they fail miserably in, in high winds. Um, but if that's what people want, but they're understory. So other than the mango and the avocado, which are giant trees, um, you know, you're not going to have a problem with an with orange tree falling on your house. Um, and I think that's all I had with that. Wait a minute. Um, right, you do mention understory trees, but you cannot substitute understory for all your canopy. Correct. Right. Okay. Wow, you thought of everything. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> That's good, because as soon as I read anything about trees, I'm looking for, okay, what? where is their little option added here? Okay, but you took care of everything. Um, but I, I appreciate that. All right, um, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, thank you for the clarity on that 7,500 square feet because I read that multiple times and I kept I kept seeing 7,500. Okay, I met 7,500. Now I'm on to the next 7,500. So now I'm going to the four canopy trees. Um, my concern, and I know the mayor and I are on totally opposite pages on this one, People are not going to plant trees in their front yard if they have a drain field, um, if they have a septic. And that's what the majority of our 80 by 120 lots are. I can understand if they don't have a, a septic system in their front, 
and they're in a pre-platted community, total night and day conversation. If you're in a pre-platted community, you're on sewer, so you can plant them in your front yard, but to require it for a pre-platted community, a pre-platted house, that, that to me is an unrealistic expectation. Uh, a lot of builders and, you know, how are you gonna put it in there? Because the builders have always said, we have to bring in so much fill because of the septic tank. So how are they going to either one, preserve a tree or to plant a tree on there with the drain field? So in the current proposal, it does not have to be a canopy tree. It doesn't. It says that at least one canopy tree or the equivalent number of understory trees and palms shall be placed in the front yard or or, I don't see anybody putting any type of tree understory or canopy or is, palm in their front. There like is that. zero reason, absolutely no physical reason why an understory tree or palm trees cannot be placed in the front yard um, on even on a house that has well and septic. The septic field does not take up the entirety of mm -hmm. the front yard area. Palm trees require very little area for root system. Um, you can put it on the periphery of the property. You can put it on the other side of the driveway. You could put it up close to the house. Um, palm trees can be planted two to three feet from the foundation of a home without causing any damage at all. So there's, there is no physical reason that would interfere with a septic system. Um, it is obviously a... The preference of a community, but if you allow every single platted lot to clear their land completely and not the, any trees back, it will be um, a tree desert, which is why most communities require this, even, even for properties that are on septic. So our current code for the tree code, it says if you get your CO and you keep your tree for a year, after a year I can remove that tree. That is being proposed to change as well. We're having properties be clear cut, and and we keep I, hearing I, over and over from the community that we don't want clear cutting. And we were hopeful that that tree code that we instituted would help solve that with the um, the conservation kind of credits it to keep not. trees. Of course, it hasn't. Yeah. No, it has not. <laughs> and, of course, it hasn't. And so, um, and people used. Hurricane Ian, Ian is a, is a big excuse to remove all the trees on their property. Um, but what we're going to have are entire neighborhoods that have no trees if, if we continue down that path. So that's why we are proposing, after seeing the effects and the impacts of um, that tree ordinance, that's why we are proposing some changes because, you know, unintended consequences are the um, kind of the, the, uh, buzzword that we, we have, uh, there were unintended consequences from that. And, and we're going to see those on a grand scale if we don't make some reverse, uh, reversing decisions. Well, okay. Um, yes, in uh, that mitigation, that's one component of, of a tree ordinance because before they were clear cutting and we weren't getting anything unless the tree was 36 inches in diameter, which was absurd. Um, and that's what's allowing us to have such a wonderful tree fund that we're actually trying to decide how to use that money. But um, yes, palms. I, I know if somebody had two Bismarck palm, palms in their front yard, 
I mean, they didn't seem to have a problem because they said, well, they're palms, but they, they have an extensive root system as well. And, and um, Director Ray, thank you for bringing that up, that you can still have, the drain fill doesn't take up your entire front, front yard. And, and people do plant palms in their front yards with no, no problems. So that is an option here, understory and palms. I think, again, you have, you have addressed every concern and there is really no reason why people can't have palms and trees around, around their house. So you're looking for a consensus on that first item. That was number three. Correct. Okay, so does somebody wanna make, should there be a minimum tree requirement for residential development? All right, uh, Commissioner Emmerich. I tell you, yeah, what staff recommended. I'm a yes as well. And yes, I'm a yes. I'm a no. Okay, okay. <laughs> have your, your direction. And the yep. second one is about garage for residential, oh, require a garage for residential development. So one of the changes in the proposed code uh, is that all properties that are in R1 mm -hmm. would have to have an attack, or they would have to have a garage that was at least a minimum size, um, sort of as a way of maintaining the character, the existing character of the R1 districts, um, or the R, RSF3 district, our existing single family districts. Um, so part of our, our thought process there was that if in the R1 district we require a garage, it'll help maintain sort of a similar characteristic for the new development. So there's been some discussion about whether or not we should require a garage and then uh, as opposed to like a carport or a parking pad or something along those lines. Uh, and if we do require a garage, how big should that garage be? And in the code we specified, it would be, I think, 10 by 20 which is a single car garage. Yep. So it's not overly burdensome. All right, uh, interesting. Mm. Um, Vice Mayor. This would be for, just point of clarification, this would be for any <coughs> R1. Correct. Good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of this. I, I just, you know, I, I know many people who have moved into this area, uh, moved into planned developments like Welland Park, chose to leave that kind of a environment for a single family home, looked all over Northport, found some beautiful homes, but were turned off by the general look of the neighborhood and the street with God knows what all over the sidewalks, the streets, the swales, the side of the houses, and decided to go move elsewhere because it just looked awful. And so I'm a big advocate of garages. Not that that solves all the problems, but it's a beginning. So. And if you. I may, that was part of the consideration here is that in a lot of times in other parts of the country, you have a basement that you are able to keep Put stuff all of your stuff in. And in Florida, obviously, we cannot have basements, and so a lot of people use their garage. So then if you don't require the garage and instead do a carport or something along those lines, oftentimes you have storage of that those things under the carport or in the side yard or somewhere else. 
Um, so this would at least for the R1 district require the garage. Um, in the R2 district, we had some flexibility where it, because we were allowing tiny homes and those types right. of things or smaller dwelling units in the R2 district, we would allow like a carport or something, but they would have to have some type of enclosed storage on the property as well. So that's how we worded it to allow some flexibility with design um, in the other districts. Mr. Emmerich. And again, this is for new construction only, not Correct. existing. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with a, having a garage here, and I was just thinking what my dimensions were, single car is 10 by 20, and I think that should be the minimum. That's it. Um, Commissioner McDowell, did you have questions on this? No, I didn't have a question. I was advocating not to have garages because it adds to the cost of the house, and not everybody wants a garage, and I think state statute also does not allow the design um, for the city to hinder design of, of the single family home. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not up on the state statute on that, but I do believe that this is something that can help cut down on the cost. We have code enforcement that makes sure that things are not full of debris and crap, you know, laying around that's, I don't know what the exact terminology is, but, um, you know, it's a single family home that somebody is building. And I'm not talking about in the pre-platted communities, but this is more of a property rights. If I don't have <coughs> a garage, I should not be required to build one. I, I can put it in a carport or a pad to help keep my cost of building a home down. We're looking for affordability here. And, and I am against having this in our code in the requirements. Totally different when you're talking about a pre-platted community like in Welland Park or Bobcat Trail. Um, this is also fits in with pre-platted community. I can speak to the statute. Um, it prohibits the city from um, regulating the architectural or aesthetic um, elements of single family property. It does not prohibit a city or a county from requiring a garage. Um, that's a structural and functional element that is um, under the purview of the cities and, and counties. Thank and you for that clarity. You're welcome. And um, I'm not familiar with any other jurisdiction in the state that um, does not require a garage for a single-family home. Something we could look at, but I, uh, it would be very surprising. Uh, most do require a garage. Anything else? Nope. Um, I appreciate you brought this forward, right? I did. Yeah. Because um, I'm thinking of years ago, we had a builder, Allstate, that had, I don't know if they had a, um, it was an option, but some people, they put the French doors instead of a garage door. Do we require that there be a garage door? Is there an option that if people know they're just going to use it for storage, which most people do. <laughs> That's why we have six vehicles that can go on a driveway um, that they can put doors on instead of a garage door. Uh, we did not specify what type of door the garage would have to have. So I don't know that there would be anything prohibiting a property owner from using it as storage space. There, It would prohibit a property owner from converting it to living space. So um, 
if they wanted, let's say you have a two-car garage and you wanted to convert a portion of that to living space, you would be able to do so as long as the remaining space met the size requirement uh, for the garage space for the code. Um, but I, I, we did not get into the weeds as to what type of door the garage should have. But right now it has to be a garage door, an actual door, garage door. I don't know that our current code specifies that and the new code also does not specify. So I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be able to do French doors on the garage. Mayor White, Lori Barnes, uh, Development Services Assistant Director. The current draft ULDC includes some language speaking to the door. It requires an operable door capable allowing of allowing vehicular uh, access. Hmm. Now, that is very dissimilar from other communities' code requirements, which really get into the details about an operable overhead door. Um, so if a garage could be designed to have some other door feature that would still allow vehicle access, then it could be incorporated as the current draft specifies. Okay. So obviously the code changed over the years because there's, there's houses out there that have, you know, those French doors on them. Um, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah. So the current draft, as they stated, has to have a operable garage door to allow a vehicle to go in. But the part that also makes me have pause is no garage shall be used as living quarters unless another garage is constructed prior to that conversion. These days, there are so, with the cost of housing, there are so many people that are trying to convert their garage into additional living space. And there are many that are trying to do it legally because they want to have a safe place with the proper ingress and egresses and all the air conditioning and all the proper requirements, but give them additional space. Living space is a garage. How many people use their garage as a man cave? And, and that is considered living space. Uh, and I, I just, I go back to enforcement. You know, how do you, how do you, and say, no, you can't have a, a man space inside of a garage because it's kind of like a family room or a family room, which is living space in a garage. And to require a garage be additionally constructed when people want to convert their garage for additional living space just seems to me as very burdensome on a property owner. And I can't agree to this because it's my house. And if I want to legally convert my garage, keeping a garage door that's operable, okay, then why shouldn't I be able to? So I, I, I'm not in favor of this code change. I would like to add or clarify something there. When I state living space, I'm talking about living space from a Florida building code perspective. So for the building code, there is a separation requirement. There are different construction requirements for living spaces versus garages. And garages 
I mean, there's a reason that it's built the way that it is and is vented the way that it is. It's to help ensure life safety issues. So when we're talking about living space, like converting your garage to living space, I'm talking about creating something that is like a dwelling unit or an extra bedroom that is compliant with the Florida building code, not necessarily, you know, a TV and a couch in the garage that you just happen to just keep the TV and the couch in there. I'm talking about actual conversion into another bedroom, another dwelling unit, another, you know, someplace where you actively live because the building code requires different separation. There's a Mm -hmm. carbon monoxide issues. There's all sorts of other life safety issues. That's what I mean by living space in this instance. Okay. But just to clarify, right now we don't require a garage or is that just part of the code and we're talking about changing it? Um, Does the city want to require a garage? So I don't think that right now we require a garage. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah. You were talking about living spaces and the, the garage and the lanai's are recessed by about four inches, and that's for in case anything happens inside the house for water or anything to get out of the house. And like you said, most garages are not under air, just like most lanai's are not under air. So if you choose to use it as living space, you're either going to be burdened with the heat or have a portable AC unit or anything out there. So, um, yeah, it is good for storage and everything like that. But, you know, where people choose to live, oh, years ago I slept in a garage with no air and stuff because that was the only place that was available for me when I was trying to rub two nickels together to make seven extra cents. But it's, in in my opinion, it's the aesthetics of the neighborhood to keep everything the same. We have old Northport which is off of the Biscayne areas, and and you have carport, carport, carport. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have the garages. Those were the houses built in the 50s and the 60s. And as you've progressed, we've gone up just a little bit into the garage area. So that's why I do support the garage, especially on new construction. And, you know, it is part of the house. I mean, people can use that extra space somehow to how they ever choose to do it. And if you have a garage door on it, ain't nobody going to see what's going on behind that damn door. So that's it. That's all I got, Mayor. I'm in favor of this. Uh, Vice Mayor? Yeah. Again, it goes back to, um, as as Ms. Elena said, there are virtually no municipalities that, you know, I know of that don't have the requirement. I, I mean... It, it, you only need to drive around this city to see how bad it looks on many, many streets where there are not garages or even where there are, but people just seem insistent upon leaving their half their household stuff out along the side of the houses. And if you're a neighbor, you know, it affects you. So I get it. I'm a property rights guy too, but at the same time, we all live as part of a community. We're not out in the Wild West. We're not sitting on 100 acres where nobody sees. 
we live next to each other. There's some common decency and courtesy that goes along with having a property that's maintained and kept up and having a garage is gonna lend itself to that. And, and it's not gonna be a cure-all and it, it brings with it some enforcement issues. But, you know, for new builds, I agree. It's, you know, I, I don't wanna go out there and tell everybody who's lived here for 20, 30 years, oh, you gotta build a garage now. But for any new build, I see no reason why they shouldn't include a garage and, and just seems like it, it makes our city that much more appealing, that much more attractive. And like I say, I know many people who do not buy single family homes in this community because of the fact that their neighborhood, that they look at, and there are some magnificent homes, but you look around the neighbors and it's such a mess, they just shine it on and go move to some other community. And that's a horrible thing, it really is. So that's all I have to say. Thank you, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, and it's all about choices. If somebody doesn't want to buy a house next to somebody that has a carport, that's their choice. But at the same time, we're trying to make housing affordable and by not allowing the conversion of a garage into a living space done legally, that to me is just wrong. And so I, I know I'm in the minority and I am not going to change anybody else's mind, just like nobody's going to change mine. But it's all about choices and trying to keep things affordable. And that's what my goal is. So. Well, thank you for bringing this uh, forward. I do agree with uh, the vice mayor when he's talking about people that yeah, store everything they own on the side of their house. But I especially notice this in the older developments where they don't have a garage, it's a carport or in places like Holiday Park. Um, and then we just come into an enforcement. You know, if we're going to say, okay, we'll put a code in place that you can't do that, well, then it just becomes another, another problem. And um, we do share property lines. Yes, it's our property, but we share property lines with our neighbor, and that's going to affect our life. And um, former Commissioner Luke once said it was a choice of people to live in a municipality, which is going to generally have higher standards than if you live in unincorporated parts of the county. So um, we just we do have to think of, of each other and how what, what we do affect. So. Uh, yeah, I would not be in favor of, of um, taking this away. So do you, do you want to? I think they already know what our Okay, is. okay. Yeah. I'm just. Yeah, we're not going to get a consensus. Number okay. But they have All direction. Right. Number five um, deals with uh, flexible or flexibility with buffer design when a fence or a wall is included versus um, not including a fence or a wall. So our type D and type E buffers both had a, uh, a buffer alternative where if you included a fence, and this was just at least a four-foot fence, um, you could have a smaller buffer. It would reduce, so type D would reduce from 15 feet to 10 feet if you included some type of barrier, so a fence or a wall. Um, and then the type E would be reduced from 10 feet to five feet if you included a wall. Um, these are our least intense um, buffers. So these are our smallest buffers. Um, and again, it just provides some flexibility. Uh, there was direction to not have allow that flexibility or not reduce the buffer size if they decided to include the fence. The intent with the buffer is to help uh, 
reduce the visual impact of it, potential incompatibilities. Uh, staff believes that with the fence, um, you're help mitigating that more than just, you know, the extra five feet of the buffer if you were to do extra landscaping or you're doing it the same. Um, so we would recommend keeping the flexibility. Uh, so the question for consensus is, should the city allow flexibility in design for a reduced buffer when a fence is included in the buffer area? Okay, and could you just reference where that is again in your, in here, the page? Um, this is on, should be about page 22. 21. Okay. All right, Commissioner Emmerich. Yeah, um, on, on these two scenarios, you, you're going from 15 down to 10 or 10 down to 5. Correct. Can you show or tell me what type of areas these would be in? Are they just single residential? Are they, you know, from the 10 down to 5, is that like a mobile home park or, I mean. So we have, let me sort of see. This is our buffer matrix. So we're talking about all of the E's and D's. So it would be like a single family home next to an ag property or um, a R2 property next to a R1 property. So these are, the, these are the areas where you basically have compatible uses. Maybe one is slightly more intense than the other, so we're requiring some type of buffer, but it's a pretty minimal buffer just to sort of aesthetically separate and uh, provide some visual separation there. Yeah, I can understand that. And you're, all, you're only talking a four-foot fence, so it's not really a six-foot we're keeping your eyes out of the property type thing. But I, 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 I struggle with going from 10 down to 5. I think, you know, maybe minimum should be at least 10 all the way across the board. I can't see going 10 down to five. I can see 15 going down to 10, but I can't see the 10 going down to five. I think that's just cutting it way too close, in my opinion. Okay. That's all I have, Mayor. All right, Vice Mayor. Yeah, I, I echo Commissioner Emmerich with regard to that, um, but I also wanna make clear, when it comes to other areas, I, I'm. I have no problem if we're talking compatible properties here, R1, 2s, and 3s, but when we get into areas where with all the development we're doing, um, yeah, I, I want to make sure that the city has the ability to really buffer. I'm very concerned about areas where we're building commercial or industrial in closer proximity to residential, and I want to make sure that, you know, if at all possible, one, we're keeping the natural trees that are there, if at all possible, to totally blot out for some of those people views of what might be commercial or industrial property, and to make sure that there's rigid enough buffers and fencing standards and everything else to make darn sure that, you know, we're doing as much to protect the surrounding property owners so there, there are two scenarios um, that sort of go to that. So uh, on the buffer matrix, which I tried to make a little bit bigger so that you can see it a little bit more easily, 
So like basically our use lists go from least intense to most intense um, from the top of the column to the bottom and then from the front of the row to the back. And so you can see that like when you have a new, when you have activity center next to an ag property, that required buffer is an A buffer. Well, an A buffer is a 50 foot buffer with eight canopy trees, four understory trees, a continuous hedge, a, ma a minimum wall of six feet, and you have to have a five foot berm. So you're looking at 13 feet of elevation between those uses that that new activity center developer has to put in to be able to buffer from the potentially single family home that's next door. So we definitely have increased buffer sizes, heights, um, vegetation in the A, B, and C buffers, really. Um, the second thing is that... I don't Where are the height minimums in, in this matrix? That's what I'm not seeing. So there's um, minimum berm, which for the first two is, for A, it requires a five-foot berm. So they have to create essentially a five-foot mound mm -hmm. that the... the um, buffer will sit on. And then you have an additional six feet because at the top of the berm, you have to put the wall. So then you have the six foot wall on top of that. Um, with the type B buffer, you have a three foot berm and then you have a six foot wall. But you also have in the type A, you have eight canopy trees per hundred linear feet. For the type B, you have five canopy trees <coughs> per hundred linear feet. Um, most canopy trees have a spread of 30 feet. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about a pretty dense, um, coverage in those, those areas. No minimums on height though, with those canopy trees or one just. So the materials, uh, so we have material standards at planting. They have to be a minimum of eight feet, I believe, and four inches wide. So that's your minimum when you plant it. Most canopy trees are going to be anywhere from 25 to 50 feet in height. So, I mean, with a type A buffer, you're looking at between the, the berm, the, the wall, and the canopy tree, you're looking at probably 80 feet of, of dense vegetation and wall to, to make sure that you can't see whatever's going on in the property next door. Um, <laughs> The B is a slightly stepped down version, but again, you're looking at still uh, uh, probably 50 to 60 feet worth of coverage. Um, and then on top of these requirements, and I, I think we put them in chapter three, um, in our, forget the name of we called the chapter. Uh, but anyways, in the areas of transition, that's what we called it, um, where we have new zoning districts that are next to existing, potentially next to existing single family, we required that any buffer that was required there has to be increased by 10 feet to be able to help mitigate the existing use to the new use. So we did add that into those requirements. So there are quite a few safeguards to make sure that 
the buffers are going to be adequate for whatever type of development comes in. Amy, thank you. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah. So while we were talking about fence, I'm glad that it has evolved into the buffering section because, you know, if you live in an R1, which is for all intents and purposes a pre-planted community and something is going to go up in a mixed use that's right next to you, the buffering is a D, which is like not quite bare basic. It's more aesthetic. It's, it's not buffering as like... A is buffering. A buffering is the most intensive type buffering possible, whereas D and E is much less. And I was talking about R1 to an MX1. Thank you. That's so R1 to MX1 would be like a single family home, potentially to townhouses or townhouse or a small strip center it's very low that low intensity it's a uh, commercial uses outside it, it, there's a lot of intrusiveness to mx12 and and i i don't like that being a d it needs to be a little bit more protected because of the sight and sounds you're not just protecting aesthetically but you're also the sounds of things um, and that really doesn't happen. Um, I don't see where it is addressed in this buffering matrix from MX1 existing single family home to an MX1 with a restaurant. It's in the same zoning because it's being changed. The house is grandfathered. <coughs> so where is that in this section? Oh, it's in a different section. Okay. So as part of our previous conversations on transitional design elements, um, we have a whole section in chapter three that, that um, speaks to all of the requirements. One of them is that buffers shall be enhanced in the areas that are transitioning where a single family home is adjacent to a permissible primary use per the use table that is not single family. In these areas, the required buffer shall be increased to the next level. So I, I misspoke, it wasn't 10 feet, it's to the next level up. Um, so for example, if the required buffer is an E type buffer, then a D type buffer would be, then be required. So it essentially um, bumps you up and then it says in instances where an A type buffer is required, an additional 10 feet shall be added to the required buffer size because that buffer is already sizable. <laughs> so we're just adding a little bit of extra to help um, mitigate any potential incompatibilities. And this must be somewhat new. I knew that we had talked about in zoning district house versus the new developments. Um, I just, I was expecting to see it here, so forgive me for that. I'm glad that you do have it covered. I can't wait to see what the final outcome of that draft looks like. But as far as the fence part, um, it's only a four-foot fence in some regards. And, and to my fellow commissioner's point, reducing it five feet from 10 to five, that's like nothing. Um, so I, I would be more inclined to remove the the reduction in that buffering area for the D and E buffers. Um, but 
for board consensus. Do you want to make a consensus now for that while we have it? For the fences? Yeah. yeah. Because D and E only, if, if I remember correctly, the minimum height is four feet and that does not, um, and it doesn't have to be opaque, does it? It does have to be opaque. I'm sorry? It does have to be opaque. Where does it say it has to be opaque? Uh, a decorative fence is, doesn't really say opaque. Type E buffer we may include a decorative fence. Well, it says may. <laughs> doesn't say it has to. I'll have to double check on where where that language is, but I'm fairly certain that it says that it has to be opaque. Okay. Oh, I think it is passed. Okay, and then are we requiring a fence or is it a may? So if you ha don't have a fence, then you have to have the larger buffer. That's how that works. If you have a fence, then you can have the smaller buffer size. So for D, if you don't want to include a fence, you have a 15-foot buffer. If you do include a fence, then you have a 10-foot buffer. Theoretically, you could include the fence in a 15-foot buffer if you wanted to, um, but it's it would only be required in the, the smaller buffer size, buffer, buffer width. Yeah. I, Mayor, if we could get a consensus that the city should not reduce the buffer when a fence is included. So you want to keep it at 10? Or 15. Or 15. Yeah. So the city should not reduce the buffer when a fence is included. So they'll have to come up with the correct language based on our consensus. Okay. So we'll be keeping it at the 15 and the 10. All right. Commissioner uh, Emmerich? I'll go with that, but I was good with the 10 and the 10. You know, reducing it on the 15 foot buffer down to the 10 foot buffer, but the other one would you stay. You didn't want the, the five. Yeah. yeah. I did not want five. Five right. was too short. I'm good with the consensus. Yeah, I'm okay with that too. Thank you. Great conversation. And just double check where the opacity is, just to make sure four feet is like nothing. Um, so the, the last consensus item uh, is in regards to docks. Um, in part two of chapter four, uh, staff reduced the setback requirement for docks on uh, multifamily properties from 20 feet to 15 feet. So this is a setback from a side lot line. It essentially, uh, well, so the, the reduction is, is just to make it a little bit more usable, user-friendly, have more dock more dock access for multifamily properties. Um, so the consensus item is, should we require setbacks for docks? We could do a zero setback, which would allow for interconnectivity between sites, or we can do the reduced setback at 15 feet, or the current code standard is 20 feet. Um, so should we require a setback, and then how large should that setback be, if any? Where was this in the code again, ma'am? Uh, this is 
is. <clears throat> oh, I lied. It's in the marine improvements. It was in part one, but it Thank was it, the language has changed. <clears throat> so it is on about page 41. Number six, all dock or pier structures must be set back a minimum of 15 feet from the nearest property line. Yeah, that was changed after we had the discussion on part one. It was changed in between part one and part two. Correct. If I remember correctly when I was reviewing this. Correct. Okay. The marine improvement section that was brought forward in the initial part one discussion um, needed some tweaks, and staff knew that going into the, the workshop. Yeah, that's why I was like, wait a minute, I didn't ask for a consensus on this, but that's because you guys changed it. And I asked why was it changed? So why was it changed from 25 to, to 15? Uh, I believe the reason was just to uh, allow for more space. Um, staff would support a zero setback if we wanted to go that direction. Again, this is just from the side property lines. Um, for commercial or multi-family docks. If I may, Mayor. Mm -hmm. um, the docks would be going where? Give me, give me some examples of bodies of water where these docks would go because if they're next, if they're in a proposed zoning change area, next to single family residential or R2 residential, or even maybe even multifamily residential, those docks are getting closer to those property lines. Correct. So where would, where would something like that take place? Uh, potentially along like the Mayakahatchee or one of those. Um, there are some areas that were Incorporated into, I'm getting a whole lot of funny faces. <laughs> Why would it be on the Myakahatchee Creek? Why would we allow docks on the Myakahatchee Creek? <laughs> we don't allow boats out there. All right. Well, I mean, potentially, I suppose docks could be used for something other than boats. You could do outdoor seating areas. There, I mean, there's either way. <laughs> I don't know all the water bodies in the city. <laughs> Wow. Um, so, <laughs> take it away. Chuck speak, Director of Public Works. You get Mac a pass, Miss Katie. <laughs> the Myakahatchee Creek, on the tidal side of our structures, there's areas there that have oh. docks. Uh, also, you have the Cocoa Plum, which has commercial on one side, residential on the other. Uh, there's some intermingling there of commercial and residential, probably multifamily as well. Okay, so water, a body of water, could it be like a lake? And I'm thinking of a lake that doesn't have any development near it now. It's over by Toledo Blade and Price. There's a big, beautiful lake back there. There's also a lake out um, in Yorkshire. Would that have like docks on it if it was to get developed? It could. That's all private though. 
Yeah. I, I understand that those are private. That's that's what we also have to think about, you know, is private and public. And um, I think those are both on one parcel. The water body yeah, is so. on one parcel. It doesn't intersect two separate parcels. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm not seeing a huge change here, but at the same time, the 25 foot was what staff initially requested was the 25 foot. So maybe we should just keep it 25 feet. They can always ask for a waiver. Uh, Lori Barnes, Assistant Director of Development Services. The um, existing code has a 25 foot setback. And when, we, when I looked at that, um, I can tell you, I could not ascertain why that 25 foot setback for a dock on multifamily was incorporated into the code to begin with. That in many cases exceeds the building setback requirement on a multifamily property. Um, as Katie said, we would even support going to a zero setback because when you think about impacts of a residential dock on the adjacent property owner, what what are the impacts? What are we trying to, what negative impact or potential negative impact are we attempting to mitigate? And if we incorporated a zero setback, there could be connectivity between those docks, especially if public access is permitted, um, providing a walkable area. Take uh, Cope Bottle Lake, for example. It could be subdivided in the future. The property along the bank could be subdivided in the future. And when you think about a mixed use component being developed adjacent to a multifamily property and then disconnecting that waterfront access way from that adjacent property, what, what have we created? We've created a disconnected site along the waterfront. Um, so when we proposed the 15, the thought process was, why are we restricting the size of docks on multifamily? And let's, you know, let's let's reduce that a little bit to a large allow a larger dock structure. Um, but in further consideration and in conversations with Katie, I completely agree that, you know, a zero setback may just very well be appropriate to allow for that connectivity. Yeah, I'm just double checking because there is some waterfront along Cocoa Plum and Hillsborough that I'm trying to see if it's multifamily that's next to any residential. I don't know. I think if, you, if, if staff is suggesting the 15 foot to go from 25 to zero, um, I, I, I don't think I could be amenable to that, but the 15, yes. And if a developer comes in and wants to change it, he can ask for a waiver to go down to the zero. And if the commission at that time says, yeah, then, you know, you know, we can all, they can always come in and ask for a waiver. I just was asking why, what was the change purpose? Cause I saw it go from 25 to 15. So. Okay, um, are we good down there? 
So I just had a question about the when when you're talking about even a zero, that is from the property line that would be on the side. Correct. Okay. So if we had a zero foot setback, it would allow um, adjacent properties to connect the dock, docks together essentially, so that you would have a continuous waterfront dock area. Right. Much like that picture you had there. But yeah, I th I was. I, they had a picture up there, and I, oh, I must I, have missed it. And I was oh, thinking of the same picture. thing, Commissioner McDowell. Like, where could we have that in Northport? Just we don't have a water body of water like that. We could have a restaurant out there, but um, okay. So this this picture this shows a zero setback. Is that would you say if each one of those buildings is somebody else's property? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I yeah. believe so. Okay. Okay. All right, well, I'm looking for a consensus to to propose something here. I'll, get, I'll ask you about a consensus to change it, to keep it at the staff recommendation of 15 feet. Okay, uh, Commissioner Amrich. I wouldn't mind the zero, zero percent setback. I could deal with that. I don't see any reason to have any setback. Uh, yeah, I can. I would go for the zero as well. Just uh, the whole idea, if, if it's to utilize the waterfront, utilize the waterfront. But what little we have of it here. So I, I'd go for the zero. Commissioner McDowell? Well, my consensus was, was for 15. 15. Okay. So <laughs> you all, all right. changed it in the middle. <laughs> but this is for multifamily docks. Multi so yeah. this picture doesn't even fit what we're talking about. This picture is this picture is commercial. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is one multifamily to another multifamily, creating mm -hmm. connectivity. Maybe they don't want people coming on. I, I, I'm not in favor of a zero setback. There, there's a reason you suggested the 15, and I, I'll stick with that. Okay. <laughs> okay. That picture is not multifamily. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So do you have, uh, are you clear with that? Do you have what you need for that one? Okay. I think so. If you're clear, that's, that's good. I'm glad you clear. are. No. <laughs> wants to get away from dogs. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, that is my last consensus item. So for the next steps, uh, basically our chapter five, which is signs, is mostly done because we had planned on having it with chapter four. So that should be coming soon. Okay. Um, and then... We have the natural resources or the environmental resources chapter. That'll be the last one. Um, so we're sort of rounding it all up. Um, at this point, we'll do probably workshops. Well, we'll do workshops for chapter five and chapter six, and then we'll bring it back with our edits for um, adoption, which is exciting. Any questions, comments, concerns? Commissioner McDowell, you're still on there. Did yeah. You? Yeah. So based on what you said, are we going to be talking about Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 in the next workshop? Or are no. you breaking them up? They will be broken up. It'll okay. be, we'll have a discussion on Chapter 5, and then we'll have a discussion on Chapter 6, or a so workshop on each. 5 will be like January, and 6 will be like February-ish? Uh, yes. Tentatively, yes. Okay, so since our workshop in January is right after the holidays and we're supposed to get these two weeks beforehand and then we have the holidays in between that, you said that 
the sign code is already pretty much done. Maybe we can get it sooner than that two weeks. So that way then we have a little extra time with the holidays to review it, if that's possible. We, we can do our best to get it to you, or I don't know, we haven't discussed official timing yet as to how we want to do it, but that's sort of general timing was January and then February. Well, hopefully sooner rather than later, because I'm sure you don't want to be answering my questions during the holidays. <laughs> um, the only other question that I have is you were talking about a new code that's going through public works, something about um, engineering. Um, the engineering design manual? Yeah, engineering design manual. Um, how does that get approved? I mean, is that, if it's being referenced in this code, wouldn't that design manual have to then also be approved by the commission since it's being referenced in this code? Yes. Um, so it's created separately and referenced and adopted by ordinance, resolution. by resolution, um, <laughs> so that they can then change it as the standards change. All right, so when are we going to see that? Because if this ULDC takes effect and y'all are still working on this engineering document and it's being referenced, but you guys haven't had it approved yet, what's that look like? Um, Commissioner McDowell, we're hoping to land both planes at the same time. Um, if in the event the engineering design standard manuals is delayed, then we will reincorporate those technical standards into the ULDC to get it adopted uh, without delaying any further the ULDC and then make appropriate amendments to remove those technical standards down the road. That is not our preference. Um, the engineering <coughs> division assures us they are working very hard with their consultants. Uh, they do have a draft prepared and it should um, should be completed in the spring, right along with the ULDC. Why did we go to an engineering design manual to begin with when everything was pretty much already in the ULDC? Many cities separate the engineering, the technical standards from the Unified Land Development Code because the, the, members, the members of the general public, that, that information is very technical. Um, and it's not information that most individuals need to delve into per se. It's something that our engineers are looking for, the developers' engineers. Um, so, so that's one reason is to um, avoid substantial technical jargon in the ULDC and make it a more user-friendly document for the majority of people. Um, the second reason is by incorporating it by reference rather than as part of the Unified Land Development Code. If the engineering department needs to change a technical standard um, that, you know, based on changes in materials or lessons learned, they're able to make that change with one public hearing by resolution rather than via ordinance, which would be required if all those standards were incorporated into the ULDC. That's public input. Thank you. Okay. Um, so chapters five and six will be coming back for us next year. Ooh. Yes. 
Um, do we have any public comment? All right. Jasmine Bowman. Regarding trees on development sites, preserving and planting are not the same. Planting young trees is nice, but young trees do not have the root structures to mature trees. Mature roots are essential for absorbing flooding, preventing erosion, and overall soil health. Preserving at least a few mature trees on development sites should be a requirement. Every day I see a lot that I see lots that are completely clear cut and every living thing, and then too much house is crammed onto too little lot. How is this being allowed? We are fortunate to still have trees in Northport. Preserving some of them should be prioritized above overbuilding every lot. And in person, we have Carolyn Price. Well, I came to speak on one item, and I have several now since I've heard some of the discussions. Um, going back to the palm issue, um, some of the things that came to my mind is that most of the palms, except for the sable palm, which is also the cabbage palm, I'm sorry, cabbage palm, which is a state palm, most of those palms are not native to this area. And having had palms on my property, having planted them, they have not survived some of the frost and freezes that we've had. The other thing is that palms have a type of ball root system, which is not an extensive root system. Those are very prone to, to blowing over in a hurricane, just because it's not an extensive branching out root system. So they're just as likely as an oak tree to be blown over. Um, the oxygen that's going to be generated by a canopy tree as opposed to a palm tree is not the same. Nowhere near the same because you don't have a 40-foot uh, canopy growth for a regular tree as opposed to a 20-foot for a palm tree. Um, there's a liability for the falling palm fronds. If you look at the royal palms, their palm fronds, if they come down and hit somebody, that's a huge liability right there. Whereas a canopy tree that's losing leaves or acorns, that liability is not there. Back to the buffering. And I'm <laughs> going to go back to the 320 project, which is the one that's closest to my heart for obvious reasons. The buffering that is proposed, which I'm not sure I understood all of it with the fencing, et cetera, but putting in eight-foot trees is in no way going to buffer the view from a house to an industrial building. It will take years before those trees are going to block the view and have a 40-foot canopy. Adding uh, 10 foot to an easement is only going to create more of a flooding problem. When you rise, raise up those berms, that water's got to go someplace. We don't have a sewer system out there. So any berms that are created for the buffering zones are going to force that water out into the street area because it's going to be higher than the elevation of the street. Thank you. Okay. 
thank you for your comments. Um, okay, so that closes out that item. So I'm looking for what what do you want to do? You want to just tackle the next one? You want to take a break and to and come back and tackle the next one, or what? Okay, so we'll, we can do ten minutes and come back. Oh. Are we okay with that? Yeah, and that way then we can wrap it up and then yeah. go to lunch. It won't be a long item. It won't be a long item, but somebody has to use the restroom. Right. Okay. So ten minutes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. All right. So we'll come back at um, twelve thirty-seven. Yes, you are signing Be sure to have your battery-powered radio ready and tuned in to 97.5. Yeah, just one. They won't be long. I'm Stacey Losio. I'm the emergency management coordinator for the city of Northport, and I'm going to tell you the difference between flood zones and evacuation zones, or in Sarasota County, we call them evacuation levels. So flood zones were generated by FEMA, and they're used to determine the likelihood that you will flood, and they're used to determine if you need flood insurance, if you have a mortgage on your home. Now, the evacuation zones are based on storm surge data that comes from the National Hurricane Center and they use topography as well as hurricane vulnerability for storm surge for the area and we use those to determine who needs to evacuate during a storm so it's important to understand that there is a difference if you're interested in finding out what evacuation zone you are in which we highly recommend you do uh, you can use your search engine of choice and type in sarasota county know your level and that'll take you to the sarasota county government website Water in a swale, that's kind of the ditch by your house, is not flooding. Within a, After a storm event, water should be in that swale up to 72 hours after the storm. That allows the water to be filtered, to get the stuff that came off our roofs and off the road out of the water so that when it reaches the habitat, it no longer has those contaminants in it. It also provides an opportunity to slow down water so that the water doesn't go so fast that it erodes um, the roadways or any other infrastructure. So when you see water in a swale, if it's only been, you know, up to 72 hours since the last rain, that is not flooding, that is doing its job. Devon Poulos. I'm the Aquatics Facilities Manager with the City of Northport and today we're going to be talking with you guys about our free swim evaluation. It's important that we do these swim evaluations so as uh, kids are registering for swim programs they get placed in the right class. What we're looking at when we're doing the swim evaluation is every swim level has what's called exit skill assessments. So what we do is we have your child get in the water and we'll go through a series of different movements. Can you go under the water? Uh, can you show us your front crawl? Can you show us back crawl? Can you show us elementary backstroke? Different strokes within there and what we're doing is we're trying to see where your child tests to before it becomes a challenge for them at that point. Once we assess that, then we'll let you know and you can go ahead and sign your child up for that appropriate level there. 
it's important that we have these so that way when we're teaching a level one we don't have kids that should be potentially in a level two in a level one class because they're not learning the appropriate skills that they need at that point in time right now uh, when we're in full summer operations uh, we ask that people come between eight and ten to do the swim evaluations just as you can hear the water splashing in the background slides and everything like that but any day of the week uh, that we're open you can come in at any point in time and ask for a swim evaluation we always have a certified swim instructor on site that can uh, have your child take a swim assessment. I'm Stacy Losio. I am the Emergency Management Coordinator for the City of Northport, and I'm going to be talking about having an evacuation plan. It's important to have an evacuation plan ahead of time, and it's very important to write it down because that way you can have it somewhere present where everybody in your family can see it and keep it fresh in their minds. And you want to also share it with people in your family or your neighbors so that they know what your plans are ahead of time and how to get a hold of you or where to look for you after a disaster. For your evacuation plans, uh, you should have multiple routes to get to the location you're planning to go to just because traffic-wise, traffic on 75 might be gridlocked. There could be some very good back roads to get to where you're going. Uh, that could get you there more quickly without being stuck in traffic. When you're making an evacuation plan, we usually tell you four different things. You should stay home if you are not in a zone that's being evacuated and if your home is built to withstand the forecasted storm. If you can't stay home uh, and you evacuate, your next option should be to go to a friend or family's home that is outside of the evacuation area and is structurally sound to withstand the storm. Third option would be go to a hotel. They're much more comfortable than our evacuation centers. Fourth option would be to go to one of our evacuation centers. Sarasota County has 12 evacuation centers. Uh, those can be found on their website. At the City of Northport, we are here to serve you. And there are many ways to connect with us. You will always find friendly faces when you come to City Hall. When you first walk in, you will see our Customer Care Center. The Care Center helps customers who call into the city to get answers they need in a timely fashion. Our Care Center has helped more than 10,000 customers last month alone. Next to the Call Center, you will find the self-service kiosk for code enforcement and building divisions. Using the QR code or by visiting our website, you can schedule your appointments with ease. Have you checked out our website? From employment opportunities to building codes, you can find just about anything using the search bar. Finally, you can download the North Report app and submit non-emergency issues to City Hall in less than a minute. The app has helped correct more than 12,000 issues across the city. No matter the method you choose, the city is here for you and together we will build a stronger community. Why do we flood? During significant rain events, Northport nearly always floods in certain areas of the city. This is thanks to the locally named Myakahatchee Creek, also known as the Big Slough Watershed. The 195-square-mile drainage area flows through DeSoto, Manatee, and Sarasota counties 
then through our city to exit at Charlotte Harbor. As the city of Northport is located at the low end of the Big Slough watershed drainage system, the city's current flooding and water quality conditions are attributed not only to the city's growth, but also to upstream runoff in the DeSoto, Manatee, and Sarasota County portions of the Big Slough. During significant rain events, ponding can also occur. Ponding occurs in low-lying areas that are characterized by poorly drained or supersaturated soils. With back-to-back -back rainfall events, the ground is totally saturated, which increases the runoff during a storm. The city works hard to maintain its stormwater conveyance system, which is comprised of roadside swales draining into 79 miles of named waterways and 132 miles of retention ditches that interconnect with each other and with the Myakkahatchee Creek. There are 64 water control structures, of which 23 are gated water control structures, 5 are gated drop structures, 28 are fixed weir structures, and 8 are drop structures. The control elevations of these structures are designed so that water is retained in the waterways in a step-down elevation system configuration. This means the water levels in the waterway segments between structures progressively decrease in elevation from north to south and from east to west. This system configuration allows both retention of stormwater runoff for water quality treatment and storage for potable water use. In preparation for a storm, the gates are opened as needed to convey floodwaters. The city has an ongoing program to inspect and replace old corroded structures. Since 2006, 13 of the high-priority structures have been replaced or rehabilitated. The city also has a program to clear the ditches of sediment deposits that have accumulated over time Eight. and clear fallen trees I and debris in the Myakkahatchee Creek. This also helps restore the and we're back. Uh, I forgot after the last uh, spiel, uh, Director Ray, if you can convey to Miss Katie to thank her for her presentation and also I have fielded uh, phone calls from from residents and they have nothing but good things to say about when they deal with her um, and it always makes them feel at ease because she is so knowledgeable and just the way she comes across is very positive so I just want to, to if you can share that with her I, I'm sorry I forgot to mention it at the end of her presentation all right we're moving on to item C, discussion and possible direction regarding suggested agenda items for the 2024 convocation of governments based on the interlocal agreement for school facility planning. City Manager, this is your item. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, first of all, we apologize for the lateness of this item. Last year, you as a board reviewed topics on November 22nd. Uh, this year, the date of the convocation is still upcoming in January, but we missed their solicitation for agenda items. So we reached out to them and they said if we were to give them some direction by the end of business today, uh, that would be fine. Uh, we spoke with staff and staff doesn't have any new agenda items for their discussion, um, but we can update them on uh, two of the items which, is, which are important to us as we would uh, anyway, uh, one being the traffic light that we are installing at Northport High School with you as a board voted on and gave approval for that we're moving forward on. And I believe that the schedule 
ETA of that traffic light will be done during the off season of this upcoming school year. You may remember that we asked the school to participate in the funding of the item, but they were unable to commit to doing so at the time, and we said we would move forward. The other item that we're working on with the school board is the um, issue of the um, technical college and their funding acceleration for their expanded phase, the expanded next phase of the college. Um, our team has been working with not only the new school, new school superintendent, but as well as Dr. DePillo, leadership over at the college. And you may remember that we went, myself and the mayor, in front of the school board and got their blessing a few months ago as well. So, so post that blessing from the school board, we have been working, um, Denny Mascarenas has been working and developing contacts within the business community to further explain and get their support for the upcoming expansion at the college, which would mean better and more training for um, the healthcare professionals that we need for the upcoming hospitals, as well as different programming that will benefit the city of Northport. Um, as we continue on that effort, um, some of the school board members have been successful and helpful in lobbying for some of the funding gap in between that project and what is needed. The total of that project is $22 million. The school board only had funding in the out years of $18 million. So even if they decide to pull up all 18 million, which is um, a task at hand to say the least, there will still be a funding gap. So we're working with them not only for the programming to be decided upon, but the funding and how it will be um, resolved, as well as the programming that is needed at the hospital as well. So I'm sure I won't be the only one to update on that at the school board. That's a that's a multi entity multiple entity um, effort, and we are just a part in that. But we are doing our part. And as we raise those issues up and continue that project along, we will be soliciting our um, partners in state leadership roles that will allow for funding to occur. And at some point in time, just like this board and this city contributed to the building of the Shannon Stahl Library over there or the SEC um, building, we contributed to that effort. We, there will be a financial ask of the city at some point in time to help with the funding gap. Well, I said all that to say uh, we don't have to have any new items unless this board has new items that they would like us to consider and discuss. And if you do, we would have to discuss them there and then bring the issues back for you to formally vote on because they have to be submitted after the business, um, after today by the close of business. Okay. So, uh, again, just to clarify, we are going to bring up the traffic light. I will bring up the traffic light during um, our conversation because there will be an opportunity to do so. Um, but we don't have any new items to bring to the convocation unless this board directs otherwise. Okay. And I also think that's important because, I, again, I, um, a lot of people don't realize that traffic concerns are, are um, the responsibility of the municipality that they're in. They assume that the school board was paid for crossing guards and all that, but they don't. So, yeah. and, I, and our concern uh, was more, was, was still specific to the fact that if we did the traffic flight and something happened on our, um, happened subsequent to that, I didn't want the school board to say, well, we didn't, we didn't want you to put a traffic light there anyway and not be supporting us. And they assured us that they supported us in the effort of the traffic light. They just couldn't financially support mm -hmm. us in the okay. effort of the traffic light. All right. All right. Do I have anything from 
my fellow commissioners to add. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, I just want this letter dated the 22nd was already sent to them or are you sending it tonight at the close of business? Which letter dated the 22nd? I don't know. There's a letter in the back of material sent from the city of Northport and How? it's dated the 22nd. I'm asking if it was sent or are you sending this at the end of business today? That was last year's letter. It's already been. Oh, <coughs> of course. Silly me. All right. So is it too late to add something? In addition to everything I just said? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. It is the, if it is the will of this board to add something, we will add it, ma'am. The only thing that we have to discuss without getting any direction from this board are the same two items that I just mm -hmm. spoke about. Okay. The reason why I'm asking is because we only get to meet with the school board once a year. And I, I have heard from many parents about the concerns about safety at school um, from the fights in the hallways, the never ending fights in the bathrooms. Um, and this is an ongoing problem. It's not an isolated incident. And I know that it's school and everybody seems to fight in school. I remember being in high school myself, but this is now moving into elementary school and even going down to um, and in the middle school. And I think maybe a conversation on school safety would be paramount um, and to find out what they're doing to help the students and addressing the safety concerns with the fighting and the inability for many students to even go into the bathroom because it's so unsafe. It's the only thing that I wanted to bring up because this is our only chance to do so. Okay, how do, what do we think about that? <laughs> Anybody, Commissioner Emmerich, do you have a, to add that as an item for discussion? Yeah, uh, it's, it's quite difficult because we can't really oversee those items being at school board and uh, resource officers up there we can find out if they planned on doing anything but i'm just asking is it more of a conversation to have on your monthly meetings city manager that you have with the mayor and stuff like that going forward because that's a meeting every single month yes um commissioner Rick. so what i would say is since we don't know what items they're going to discuss yet I'm happy to respond back to them and let them know that the updates on the two items uh, will be coming forward and then introduce those conversations that you're having right now if they're not already topics mm -hmm. on the agenda. During the meetings, as we've all attended them, there is always an opportunity and an encouragement from the school board for us to speak about what's important to us. I don't believe that that item is something that's going to be so unique that there wouldn't be um, the opportunity for discussion and conversation for feedback on the security of our students in our schools. Yeah, and I'm just curious on what would be the proper place and proper time to discuss that to where we could have a, like Commissioner McDowell says, it's, it's going to be a longer conversation when it comes to our children and what's actually going on within those school boards and what the resource officers are doing, what the school's doing, this, that, and the other. And I know there's timelines on this upcoming meeting so I would think that the convocation would be the direct the best audience to have that conversation mm -hmm. and then we follow up sort of routinely about the 
um, progress or their plans in our monthly um, Council of Government meeting. Right, and that would be my suggestion. Even get the ball rolling and then continuing it on. That's that's what I was sort of getting at. Yes, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Vice Mayor, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's an item that can be more brought up at the meeting itself. I don't know that we need to add it to this because this does this is time sensitive. This needs to get out today, and I can't imagine that. This is a, it's a, such an important subject that I can't help but feel it's not going to come up in some way, shape, or form anyway. And if it doesn't, any of us could bring it up. There's opportunity to speak, I believe. So you're saying that it's it's too late to add this as an agenda it's item. Too late. But we can just bring it up when we're there. So traditionally, you are asked in advance, and you provide topics as a board, and you decide on all of those topics, and then that letter is sent to the school board and they are aware and they have it in advance and they put it on their right. list of items. What I'm saying is this year, since we dropped the ball and we've missed that deadline, um, they're still asking us and allowing us to submit to that submit. those topics. Okay. But I would be careful to add anything new when I talk to them today because you as a board did not officially agree upon it in a, as an official agenda item. So if I were to go back and update them on two items that you have already previously approved upon, I think that would be fine. If I were to say something like, um, let's say the topic did not come up in the agenda, and I said to them and said, uh, I think Madam Chair Rose is their chair right now, and says, unfortunately, we weren't able to submit the topic of school safety. It's important in Northport. I would like to put it on the record now that we have had conversation that we think that is an important item of topic. And if the board and our peers were not ready to discuss it at this time. I would follow up through the school superintendent and their board representative during the COD meetings. I would say something like that. Yeah. Okay, um, but I appreciate Commissioner McDowell bringing that up. It is it is a concern, and I think it needs to be out there um, so that we are aware of this. I've been made aware of this for quite some time. We, the school board, adopted their own police force. They don't use resource officers anymore, and um, um, I, I think that we just need to make our concerns known. I don't know if one has anything to do with the other, but um, it's also an, an unfortunate um, byproduct of what's going on in general um, out there. So um, I really would like to have this brought up, however you think that should be done. And thank you, Madam Mayor. And as a point of reference, when we started doing, or, or as we continue to do our own safety measures in this building and the other city buildings, we looked at what the schools were doing as an example of uh, how to begin our process. And I know that based on the climate of the country, the county, and the state, that they are always looking for ways to improve their own processes. So working lock, step, and key could be helpful for us all. Okay. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, the only reason why I was hoping that this might be an agenda item at the at the convocation of a government's meeting in January with the school board um, was because many parents um, have brought this to my attention, and this is an open meeting, whereas the COG meetings that are held monthly are pretty much closed meetings, and citizens can't hear the results and what's what steps are taking place. Um, that's the, I really think this conversation needs to be had, and hopefully we can get some some concrete information that the parents can take a little bit of um, 
hope that things are being addressed instead of being swept under the rug because this is involving almost daily and it's going on the buses now too and it's happening at the bus stops. I, I, I get a lot of phone calls on this. So um, hopefully we can have a bigger conversation at this January meeting with the school board. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I would encourage parents to contact the school board and make their, their voice known at those, at those meetings. Um, I always it, tell it them. It is a concern, yeah, right. Okay. Okay, my board is clear here. Any public comment on this? Right. All right, so I think that's it. We've reached the end. All right, do I have it before I bang the gavel? Right, did I miss anything? All right, so it is 12.51 and this workshop session is adjourned. Yes, hello.